Guess what? The Rewatchables will be making our television debut on AMC during the movie Elf. Check it out December 16th at 8 p.m., part of AMC's Best Christmas Ever. So tune in or set your DVRs. Just don't miss it. And it's all made possible by IHOP, where you can try the Elf on the Shelf menu. It's new and only for a limited time. They've got Jolly Cakes, they've got Oh What Funnel Cakes, and they've got Merry Marshmallow Hot Chocolate. So be good for pancakes' sake and treat the whole family. The Rewatchables is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Dodge evil villains, defend the Earth, and face a fire-breathing dragon at Universal Studios Florida. Enter the land of superheroes, beasts, and magical creatures at Universal's Islands of Adventure. And live the carefree island life at Universal's Volcano Bay, the first ever water theme park. Plus, coming in spring 2020, there will be an all-new live-action stunt show that will blur the lines between stage and cinema like nothing ever seen before. So plan your Universal Orlando vacation now at www.universalorlando.com. And you know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! This is The Rewatchables, The Wolf of Wall Street. My name is Jordan Belfort. I was raised in a tiny apartment in Queens. Is that your car on what? Yeah. Hey, listen, I quit. Yeah, I'm going into stocks. I started my own firm out of an abandoned auto body shop. FBI! I know we're a little unorthodox. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. You gotta cut a deal. You want me to rat? What are you gonna do, throw this all away? This is America! I love you, Jordan. I ain't going nowhere! The Wolf of Wall Street. Rated R. Tomorrow. Hey, this is the first time the three of these people have done a podcast together. I'm here with Ryan Rosillo and Chris Ryan. Hi, guys. What's up, man? What's up? I, that is right. It's the first time. What yeah. do you get? A Ken Griffey? Is it a Ken Griffey? Ken Griffey Jr. Okay. Sweatshirt. Sorry, yeah. distracted. That's okay. Ken Griffey, one of the greats. The Wolf of Wall Street, one of the greats. <laughs> we like to start this show usually by talking about uh, the first time that we saw it and our initial impressions of the movie. The Wolf of Wall Street obviously came with a lot of expectation. Leonardo DiCaprio reuniting with Martin Scorsese about a scumbag horse on Wall Street. and. Um, I will say personally for me, it was, allegedly. It was uh, allegedly. Everything is in quotation marks in this whole podcast. <laughs> I was, uh, I probably had not been more excited for a movie than this movie, the whole up to that point. The that trailer, century. man. The trailer, like, really like, created a frenzy. Ryan, wh- where was your head at in the, in the run up to The Wolf of Wall Street? I think, like, a lot of guys, you know, that combo, Scorsese, DiCaprio, and then you're like, okay, I'm in. But then you just you start thinking, like, how many NBA games am I going to miss? <laughs> for a three plus hour movie. Um, so I, I remember, I think I remember just sneaking away as a solo deal. And I I couldn't wait because I remember the book. And I know it's going to sound funny, but I remember when the book first came out. I remember which bookstore I was in Brookline, Mass. I grabbed it. I read the first chapter and I hated it, which is weird because usually I love every hmm. deviant behavior book ever. But I was kind of like, is this guy just going to talk about how awesome he is the whole time? Yeah. And so I was like, I'm out. I'm not going to buy the book, which is really weird because normally I always read books like that. So it ended up once the once the movie was coming out, I was like, oh, man, maybe I should have read that. But at that point, like it was too late because I couldn't wait to see the movie. There's no way I was going to finish the book in time. Sierra, did we see this movie together? I think we did at the Vista in L.A. And I remember it being like this, this movie feels like a drug trip because you just you're you're in that first hour, hour and a half. And you're just like, I know that what I'm doing is bad. Or what I'm watching is bad, but it feels so good. It feels so good to watch this movie 
this is just Scorsese being like, I don't give a shit. I'm just every single shot, every single scene is going to have some flourish, some slow-mo overhead. We're going to overlay Howlin' Wolf here. Then I'm going to, you know, cut back in time. Then I'm going to do this. There's going to be voiceover. They're going to break the fourth wall. And then about midway through, you start to be like, man, this is still going. We're still doing this. And then at the end, you're just like, I feel like shit. I feel <laughs> terrible. I feel hungover. I feel empty. And I don't know what I'm supposed to make of all that. And that's why I, I'm actually surprised because this movie now has become a rewatchable for me. Because it, even though it's such a physically demanding experience the first time through in the theater, as a it's on cable, as a I have it in my you know Amazon or iTunes library, and I'm just going to call it up every once in a while, as a... I just like happened to see one of the scenes on a YouTube algorithm and now I've watched five scenes about it. It's perfect. And as of like this week, rewatching it this week, I think it might be the funniest movie I've ever seen. It is an incredible farce and you don't think Scorsese and funny and you definitely don't think Leo and funny. And somehow they have a bizarre chemistry that makes it like a stand-up three-hour comedy, which is kind of incredible. I don't think I was expecting that when I first came in. And the things that I was amazed by were not the humor. What what kind of movie were you expecting having read the first chapter of that book? Well, I knew all the lead up, like all the debauchery and, you know, all that stuff that I remember, you know, the first time through, like I get my hands on a Hell's Angels book and you were like, I can't get enough. Like, mm-hmm. I want to hear how terrible like, these Hollywood elites of inviting Hell's Angels up to their parties because they thought it was cool. And then it would like always go wrong. And I'm just like, this is, this is nuts. So like, I... I didn't want a muted version of it. And I know we'll get into the financing of this a little bit later, but like these guys got to do whatever they wanted, as you pointed out. And it's like, look, if you want to do the book and you want to put all the stuff in, then put all the stuff in. Yeah. And yeah, it's overwhelming. And it it reminds me a little bit of like some of the backlash to the Joker movie where it's, oh, well, you know, you guys are insensitive about this topic or are you really doing the best for mental health? And it's like, well, why, why can't someone just make a movie? Like, why can't somebody just make the movie and say, Hey, this is what we want to do. This, this happened. This guy's documented it all. I know there's debates on Jordan Belfort and how accurate his own version of his own story is, but it seems like some of the stuff I was going back and looking at last night and this morning being like, you know, fact checking a lot of the stuff all checks out and like, yeah, that did happen. That happened. That happened then if the audience wants it, and clearly the audience liked it enough, like I don't want to hear from the person that felt like, hey, it's over the top and it's too much and I couldn't handle the drug use and I couldn't handle, like what did you go, like what did you want to see? There's an interesting conversation for us to have and we'll have it later in the show about people being concerned about who is enjoying the movie. There is like an anxiety about if this guy likes the movie, is it okay for me to like the movie? And that's that same thing happened with Joker. There was a lot of fear like, oh, if incels like it, then we shouldn't like it. But This movie straddles a very, very nuanced line of portraying horrible shit, making it entertaining, as Chris is saying. And and it's fun to be with these characters, even though you know a lot of the things they're doing are not good. Let's do some data points on the movie before we get into a deeper conversation. So obviously directed by Morton Scorsese. It's written by Terrence Winter, who is a longtime Sopranos writer, one of the best TV writers of the 21st century. Stars Leo, Jonah Hill, and just amazing performance. Margot Robbie, for the first time we saw her. Mm -hmm. Matthew McConaughey, Kyle Chandler, John Bernthal, Rob Reiner, John Favreau, (laughs) Joanna Lumley, plus a whole cast of that guys that we'll get into in detail. It was shot by Rodrigo Prieto, who also shot the new Scorsese movie, The Irishman. Edited, of course, by Thelma Schoonmaker, Marty's longtime editor. It was released by Paramount, though not financed, as Ryan points out, by Paramount, which is an important distinction. It was released on Christmas Day 2013, truly a holiday for me. It had a $100 million budget. It earned $392 million, making it by far Martin Scorsese's biggest hit of his career. 
It was nominated for five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor for Leo and Jonah. No wins. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes says 79%, which we all know is bullshit. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to read something here. This seventy nine percent. Can you imagine having like that's your opinion? That kind of lukewarm, like it's an eighty. It might just be too long for some people. I think that that was a big that was that was held against it. I remember it be. It's funny. My wife and I rewatched the movie this week, and when we saw it together, she was like, "That movie's too long." That was her first takeaway. And I was like, "Ah, does that really matter? Like, why would I want less Leo and Scorsese in my life? Why would I want to pair that back?" Yeah, because the parts that you would cut. And we can get into the length because I, I, you know, as a full viewing experience, I don't know if it's the runtime is aged the best. But when you actually go through with pruning scissors, you're like, what am I cutting here? Am I going to cut the the boat to Monaco? Like, what what are we cutting? I wouldn't lose anything. So in naming this movie his second favorite film of 2013, Wesley Morris, writing at Grantland at the time, wrote, It's not unfair to note that all Scorsese and screenwriter Terrence Winter have done is build Goodfellas around Jordan Belfort's memoir, of a financial industry douchebag, but all the unhinged glorifications of Goodfellas are played here as epic farce. The film constructs circus around lawless clowns, the most flamboyant of them played by Leonardo DiCaprio doing his most gonzo acting ever. This is the funniest American movie of the year and the most dangerous Scorsese has been in more than two decades. The wolf isn't Belfort, it's Big Bad Marty. Chris and I did a Scorsese podcast recently to rank our top five Scorsese movies. I'd like to know what yours are, actually. I should have pitched that to you ahead of time. But give me, uh, give me a few minutes as I do it in between what we're doing here. Is he a, is he a guy for you? Is he oh, a person yeah. who you're like, this yeah. is important to you me? You know what was great? Because I think when you guys brought up that podcast and, and launched it, and, um, you know, Adnan Burke is a good friend of mine mm-hmm. who's obsessed with him. And, you know, after I read The, the Irishman and I can't wait to see it, and he was telling me, like, you got to go see it immediately. And I was like, be honest. Like, with Scorsese, Pacino, and De Niro, like, they could have been doing mad libs and in, sure. in, in, in subtitles and you would have been into it. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker, um, yeah. But when some of the, the Scorsese stuff was coming out on the Goodfellas film where I hadn't seen any of these clips where it's him directing the scene outside of the pizza shop where the guy's shot and the whole thing, like you're just watching him going, that's some, like in 60 seconds, I just learned so much about yes. you and the way you see this stuff and not, you know, like whenever you're talking about this stuff, you can try to be a little pretentious about it. But I mean, it's true. It's like, there's a reason why some of these guys are so good at it. And in just a very, very short amount of time, you can just be so impressed. You're like, oh, that's how you wanted to adapt that and tell that kind of story. So, yeah, he's absolutely a guy for me, um, no matter what. I mean, it doesn't matter if he's going to do something. I'm going to go see it. Where does he fit in the – where does this movie fit in the Scorsese arc for you? It's in my top five. Yeah. I mean, I, I put it in my top five when we did that pod. Uh, it's only grown in my estimation as, since it came out. Um, it, it just – it stands up to repeat viewings, not only because of what Scorsese is doing, but because uh, it feels in some ways like his most free movie. It, there's it's it's so chaotic visually, but it's also really chaotic intellectually and and comedically. Like there's a lot of lines in this movie. When we get to best quote, I have like I think it's like twelve hundred words copy and pasted from from this movie now. There's so many lines that happen like as the camera's cutting away and there's like an off-screen ad lib going on and DiCaprio and those guys in the making of this movie if you watch it on YouTube there's like a Universal or somebody put it out like a um a making of and they're just like yeah like we would do one take that was kind of the script but then we would just like play around and that probably may- is one of the reasons why it's so long is that the takes and the and the scenes just kind of like organically went on and on and on that's the upside, too, of casting a bunch of comic actors who mm-hmm. know how to improvise, like Jonah, who's 
basically made his bones on Apatow movies where all they do is just riff for hours in front of the camera. I feel like that gives this movie a different energy. I feel like the Scorsese movies are precise and they feel designed and contained. And this movie is fucking everything. It's exploding all over the place. Yeah. Now the camera is moving a lot and you can see that there's a lot of intention with the way that it's written, but it just, it's just, lo- it hangs loose in a way that a lot of his movies just don't. You, you brought up so many good points on the, on the comedic part of it. Cause you would never say like, Oh, it's this comedy, right? Yeah. I mean, you would never describe it that way, but I don't know if that's the brilliance of what Terrence Winter did in this whole thing. And that, you know, a lot of times the rules, it's like, okay, if you don't do anything funny with these, these are just assholes for three and a half mm-hmm. hours. And as simple as it sounds, it's like, you know, the audience does want to know that they're like, who, who am I rooting for? Like, what do I want to have happen? And then there's always that weird thing where in the end, it's like, do you actually want Leo to get off here because you've spent so much time and you've yeah. him? Well, of course you don't. The guy's a piece of shit. Um, you don't want to get away with any of this stuff, no. but you kind of do though, because he's like the... Just call him a hero is is a mistake, but I mean, I just always think that's the first thing. Like that first character that you're introduced to, especially when somebody like Leo, who I think has a high high approval rating, no matter what he's doing, it's like, okay, well, what, what am I actually doing? How to make it funny is like the way it actually works. Because if it was just straight drama and like, oh, here's here's the crisis now, and now I'm in trouble, and now I'm doing all these things, it would have probably been really boring. There's a, in that same making of that I was referring to with all the improv stuff, Favreau gives a quote where he said, there's basically two kinds of stories. There's aspirational stories and there's cautionary tales. But this movie is a cautionary tale about aspiration. You know, it's essentially a movie about addiction. It's about basically having a break from your own self when you become addicted to something. And it's like, I think that the main line of the whole movie is when Mark Hanna, when McConaughey's character is like, you know, they're going to want to take their money out at 16 and be excited about because, but you don't let them do that because it's real. So you get them, you have another great idea and you have them reinvest because they're fucking addicted. They will. And that's like the whole movie. The whole movie is basically about drugs and money and how these things that are like outside of like what we consider normal life, if you give into them, will essentially take your life over. And the morality of the characters is almost besides the point. Because once you give yourself over to addiction like that, a lot of those kinds of considerations go out the window. Yeah, I think it's unhealthy to think that movies should only be like Field of Dreams, where there's a redemptive <laughs> tale of a man being reunited with the ghost of his father. And I don't. it's okay, I think, actually, to portray the horrible, selfish, heinous acts as long as you have an awareness of it and it, the movie is posi- the movie's positioned very carefully not to moralize per se but to make you understand its morality and there's like a fine line between those two things last time you were on the show Ryan you talked about the town you are a new england guy you are well situated to understand the psychology of some of the characters in the town i and my family are Stratton, from, from, from from queens and long island chiseled and, and plymouth fucking rock this is this movie is in the queens long island Hall of fucking fame. These The people in this movie are the people that I knew grew in, growing up. They are, some of them are monsters. Some of them are lovely. Some of them are both. They all want to be fucking rich under any circumstances. They love drugs. <laughs> they want to eat drugs every day. And they want to marry a beautiful woman. And they want to drive a Lamborghini, a white Lamborghini if they can. And there's something about identifying real humans in the world that even though this is a farce and it's funny and it's Scorsese doing this big dramatic thing, it's evident to me that this is not just aspirational, but replicative. You know, it's like it's trying to recreate something that exists out in the world and is really successful at that. Even in somebody like Leo, who is the, you know, golden god of California and has been an actor all his life, 
he kind of turns into a dickhead from Queens pretty impressively. And it's funny to watch something that it feels so close and yet so far at the same time on screen. Leonardo DiCaprio, you, you know, you mentioned that we want to root for him, but I feel like he's always making an effort to uglify himself or to play like a more dastardly kind of a character. Do you think that somebody like him can ever push it too far where he's playing somebody who's irredeemable and that we lose our relationship to him or does he just have an essence? Well, I think he has that essence and I personally would root for him to go any route he wants to go. Um, But I also think I'm in the minority. I I think if you've liked him for this long and there's just something, I mean, this is the thing about movie stars, man. I mean, Matt Damon was just here the other day and we were talking about it. It's like something, something happens when that guy walks into a room and you're like, man, he's awesome. I mean, it's, it sounds yeah. stupid, but it's true. It true. It doesn't, I don't care who you are as a guy. You're just like, man, Matt Damon's here. DiCaprio has that. So I would root for him to do anything and push it too far because he definitely pushes it. I'm sure there's some people that are listening to this be like, you know, he does awful, awful shit in this movie. You know, I'm like, okay, again, it's in a script. It didn't happen for real. Um, and he does a great job at being this really just awful dude where it's like, hey, I'm admitting to you how big the drug thing is as far as every part of my day. Um, yeah, pr- practically opens the movie with it. Right, you know, that's the whole he thing. He outlines his his prescription chart, basically, at the start of the movie to make <laughs> us understand how he powers his way through every day. Yep. On a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. Okay, Mr. Jordan. I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome. Morning, make the back pain. And, you know, you, you sit there and, like, think you have some buddies that, like, cross the line every now and then. And yeah. then you listen to that kind of timeline, and it's not exaggerated. Like, it's what Belfort was doing. You're like, what kind of hell must that have been in just to get into the routine to just, you know, get your day started? But if you're going to stay out that late, I you know, and I— I don't want to finish the DiCaprio answer here because I do think that if he pushed it too far, then some people would be bummed out because they've invested all this time in loving DiCaprio this much. But as you talk about being from this part of the country, I loved it. And in a weird way, like, why did it take so long for somebody to tell the true deviant Wall Street movie? Mm-hmm. Why, like, Wall Street with with Gordon Gecko was like, okay, you know, we get it. Like, let's move some stocks around here and I'm going to fuck yeah. you over. And, that you was know, about power. Yeah, it's- you're going to buy art yeah. and um, whatever. We'll go to the Hamptons for a little bit. Um, all the financial crisis movies were really just more about telling a different version. The procedure like the, of it. Yeah, yeah, like The Company Man I really liked. Uh, was Margin Call Margin the Call's one? Great. Yeah. Margin Call's really good. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, The Big Short's incredible. Like, and it's, it's McKay does an awesome, awesome job finding a, a way to tell a story that would have seemed incredibly boring. But he killed it. But, you know, this here— is, This is closer to Boiler Room, this movie. It is, but Boiler Room was so over the top, you're laughing at the wrong time. Yes. And I love Boiler Room, <laughs> but like I kind of just make the joke. Like when Jamie Kennedy is supposed to be a tough guy in an alley in a bar fight, <laughs> like it's just, it doesn't. When it, Affleck's just like, I just want the Alec Baldwin, Glenn Gary speech, whatever it is you guys have for me, like give it to me. And he, he does that, those are the keys to my my boat or whatever. No, he's like, that's um, Ferrari. Yeah, Ferrari. Right. He's like. What's up? <laughs> and he throws the keys. Thought, Look, I've, I used to have that drop for my radio shows. Oh, that's right. But this is, you know, where the Goodfellas thing is the glorification of, of mob life because there's always this part of us, whether it's like Westerns as a, as a kid or our parents 
or even like once all the South Central LA movies started taking over and you're like a white kid asking if that is men of society back in, oh shit, it's out again. Can I reserve it? Are you guys going to have another copy? And then all of you guys like sort of embrace that shit, even though you're in these white suburbs and you're just like enamored with this black culture because rap is blowing up. Like there's all of these, these things that go on that it's very clear that we love consuming this shit, but this hadn't really happened yet. And it was especially, I think, intimate for guys, depending on who you went to school with or what schools you went to. We all know we have a bunch of buddies that were like, I can't wait to get to Wall Street. I can't wait to fucking party like crazy. I can't wait to do all the weird shit that I've been hearing about from years, you know, from previous generations. Now, to pull it off to the level Belfort did is is another level. Sure. But it was – like, yeah, that's kind of what this is. Like, I remember talking to certain friends. We're like, well, how does it work? How does it work? I was like, well, you know, the first few years, you're out all the time with clients. They come to the city, and that's what they want. And then your bank or wherever you're housed up, like, they figure out if you can handle your booze, and can you stay out till 3 or 4 in the morning, and can you show up the next day and get ready to trade? <laughs> and it's like, some guys can, and some guys can't. And that's what I think is an impressive way of being like, yeah, this stuff actually does happen. Like, this is the lifestyle. Chris, you did about five years as a broker on Wall Street. Why don't you tell us about your experience? (laughs) I did live, I mean, I do think that there's something to this movie about, it crucially basically starts after Black Monday, right? Like after the the Black, it's Black Monday, right? Black Monday. Yeah, Black Monday, yeah. And um, they... So it starts at the end of a certain era of Wall Street. And even back in that, like the Oliver Stone Wall Street days, I think that they had this conception of stockbrokers still, there was still a like widely held concept that they were like masters of the universe and that there was actually a skill and a a calling to be answered here. And that's, this movie dissuades us of that notion that there is something like uh, ultimately good or that you need these guys in society to move the money around because otherwise like the financial system would crash. They're literally pirates. Like, and and that is, and you kind of have to watch this movie as, as a mobster movie, as a piracy movie. It's not, there's nothing, there's nobody there to be like, oh man, I really hope Donnie makes it through this. You know, he seems like a good guy. They don't do any audience avatars. Even Naomi is kept at like a, an arm's length. She's pretty much viewed through Jordan's eyes. So it's not like you're like, it's not like Karen and Goodfellas where she gets a lot of her own voiceover and tells it from her perspective. Or like the family in The Sopranos. Yeah. Like, you know, I didn't really understand it until later on. It was like, no, you needed those characters to round out people. And they, right. don't, they don't even try in this. No, no. no. And almost every single person is a scumbag in the movie, which is a, it's a, an interesting choice and, and really rare. I think also, you know, we'll talk, we'll get to the most rewatchable scene very soon, but the McConaughey sequence and Mark, meeting Mark Hanna is basically the thesis statement of the movie. It's basically just, you're here to you're here to get money. You're basically here to rob people. That's the whole point of this job. And it's so while you're doing it, you're going to do a lot of cocaine. It's so nihilistic because he's basically like your body is just a vessel to make money and jerk off and do coke. And that's that's like and Tootsie? those are the Tootsie. <laughs> I hate to to be like this negative about certain things, but like the more I read about stuff and you just go back and, and just whatever you want to read, you're like, oh, wait, so this isn't really what happened. Like, mm-hmm. this is why this happened in history. Like, I grew up always thinking it was this. Be like, oh, this is this is because this other guy was a total fuck up. Like, this isn't the big win I thought it was or, you know, reading about people that pull all these financial scams and you just start thinking like. I know personally at this stage of my life, I wouldn't decide to be like, all right, you know what I want to start doing? Finding a way to fuck over people left and right. Yeah. Like, that's my new thing. At like mid-40s, I decided <laughs> this is this is my deal now. But if you're 22 yeah. and you're a kid from Queens who grew up with two accountant parents and you got wide eyes and you meet Mark Hanna over lunch one day and he's 
Hoover and martinis on a Monday morning, maybe you're like, this is the lifestyle I want. Maybe I do want to be a degenerate and I do want to make as much money as possible. I, I wouldn't have gone in that direction, but you could see it's but, showing us like a babe in the woods getting turned. And it was funny because I thought like I was going to have this going through and be like, well, make sure I bring up the Mark Hanna thing and that he basically describes Wall Street mm-hmm. in just a matter of minutes and like, that's it. It's the most efficient description of a market and how the economy works and like the history of fucking movies. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. No. So if you got a client <clears throat> who bought stock at eight mm-hmm. and it now sits at 16 and he's all fucking happy, he wants to cash in, liquidate, take his fucking money and run home, you don't let him do that. Okay. Because that would make it real. Right. No. What do you do? You get another brilliant idea, mm-hmm. a special idea, another situation, another stock to reinvest his earnings and then some. And he will every single time because mm-hmm. they're fucking addicted. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep doing this again and again. And again, meanwhile, he thinks he's getting shit rich, which he is on paper. Mm-hmm. But you and me, the brokers, right. we're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. Right. That he's like, look, he's like, you can't let him take that money, like, because then it's fucking real. Yeah. And it can't be real. <laughs> yeah. And then it's back to that thing of me being negative about things. You're like, oh, wait, that's bullshit. Like, right. is the best way to go through life just being like, yeah, you know, like I'm not really trying to do too much here. It's it's just bullshit. And just like in the movie, which happened in real life, that once Belfort was interviewed, he thought like, oh, all this exposure is going to be terrible. And then he shows up and kids are lining up left and right. And it's just like Michael Lewis when he wrote Liar's Poker after just being like, you're there. No one is really that impressive. It's just we're the we're the house. And next thing you know, a couple years in, you're making a couple hundred grand. And Lewis is admitting freely, like, I had no idea what I was doing. I think it was Solomon Brothers. Mm -hmm. And then he would start going on these speaking engagements as his new author. And all he was getting hit up with was young guys graduating from business school being like, is there a way you can get me a job? Exactly. And he's like, no, no, I just told you the whole thing's full of shit and it's a despicable industry. And they're like, yeah, I have two suits. Like, when can I start? There was like an idea that, investment bankers and stockbrokers were Ivy League tweed suit guys with gla- heavy glasses who understood this like hieroglyphic system that you know, you had to you know go to Princeton to get the key to understanding. And guys like Belfort came in and were like, oh no, that's not the case. You just have to call somebody and sell them a pen. Oh, it, Boomerang, which is the other Lewis book that, yeah. you know, I don't know if anybody's ever going to make it anything because the big short I think was like Boomerang's a collection of financial stories. And I, I do reference this book too much, but the ice... Landic chapter in it, like the fall of that economy. Yeah, yeah, right. But prior to it, they're like they just have a way about them. They Icelandic <laughs> people, yeah. like, and yeah. people. Were, I mean, people were arguing insane shit, like their clean lineage, that it's only Icelandic people reproducing with Icelandic people that somehow led to understanding fucking markets. Right. Do you know how fucking stupid that sounds <laughs> after the fact? But smart people were arguing oh, that yeah. shit because they're like, you know, what is it about the Icelandic banker? And they're like, ah, they just see it in a way, you know, yeah. just, you know, living off a good cod. And you're like, no, you're frauds too. Yeah. If, if it's confusing at all what the purpose of the Hannah sequence is, just go back and rewatch it and keep make a note of the moment when Leo's character says, but hey, if they make some money, then everybody wins. He goes, no. And he goes, no. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that's it. It is no. every warrior for himself. You that. guys are really good at this because I thought like, oh, yeah, make sure you point that out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it is like that's the whole – that's everything. 
It's all you need to know about it. It's thesis in the second paragraph. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So let's go to a most rewatchable scene with that in mind. Before we get to Hannah, we meet Jordan Belfort and we get the life of Jordan Belfort. Here comes our unreliable narrator. Come to tell us what every day is like for him. My name is Jordan Belfort. Not him. Me. That's right. I'm a former member of the middle class raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. And it's, it's no, 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 fucking no, no, hilarious. It's, it, we see it does something very smart, which it shows us a character in the prime of his life at the beginning of a movie and makes us think that everything is great. And it's not great. It's mm-hmm. actually right as the fall is about to come. But I love when a movie kind of sets you up and makes you think we're going to go on this wondrous journey with a hero and it kind of pulls it back. But that combination, like Chris is saying, of breaking the fourth wall, of using voiceover, of flipping the car from red to white in real time shows you right away that like Scorsese's kind of up to some shit. He's not, he's like breaking all his rules at this time. Yeah. But I like that they never, they never do it in a, um, in a moral way. Like he never breaks it where he's just like, Hey, I know that this is really bad guys. Right. So you should, we should all judge these characters. He's kind of like you made them and we all participate in this and in our own ways are, 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 uh, victims of this stuff and i i love the fact that it never slows down for a second to be like let's judge these guys let's have like a moment where we realize that we're better than them mark hannah lunch well hector here's the game plan you're gonna bring us two absolute martinis you know how i like them straight up and then precisely seven and one half minutes after that you're gonna bring us two more then two more after that every five minutes until one of us passes the fuck out <laughs> Excellent strategy, sir. Uh, I'm I'm good with water for now, though. Thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We've already talked about it a little bit, but I think you can't. You want to do a McConaughey riff? I feel like you can't understate everything that McConaughey is doing in this movie for like for like four minutes. So I'm working on this other project, okay, and it's done. We filmed it already, and it's just funny that this ties up. But like between. Dallas Buyers Club, this movie, and then into True Detective, like this was the reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've all read about it and all that kind of shit. Like he was so unlikable. And people can talk about Killer Joe, but it just wasn't mainstream enough. But this became everybody going, oh, wait, like I think I like McConaughey again. Right. And the Hannah character and the hair, I think, has as much to do with it as the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, so it's insane. so 80s terrible. It's <laughs> unbelievably bad. So I was lucky enough to interview him twice when I was at ESPN. And when he was going to, I couldn't wait to go see Interstellar. And part of it, I always thought it was funny that like Christopher Nolan would have casted McConaughey because at some point, like Nolan was okay with it where Nolan normally would be like, no, do I want McConaughey playing like a serious astronaut? Like, does that make any sense? But yet we were okay with it. And had it happened before any of these movies had happened, I think people would have been pissed off about it. Yeah. But then I asked McConaughey and it was, I've already taken too long telling the story. I took too long to ask the question. And McConaughey was kind of picking up on like, look, I know what you want to ask me. You're basically asking like, can I put some McConaughey sauce on the roll? <laughs> Even if it's like Christopher Nolan, where it's always a little darker, a little detached, you know, there's, yeah. there's a, he casts avatars for himself, Christian Bale, yeah. DiCaprio, yeah. they're very stiff kind of 
Right. They're very British, even if they're not British. Exactly. And McConaughey was such a departure from that. So I go, look, it's Christopher Nolan. It's his script. We're talking space. Like, hey. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he would like want to interrupt me to be like, I you know what you were trying to say. Was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and he goes, you know, you know, when you got, uh, you know, when I'm, you know, I got to have a little freedom to, you know, do what needs to be done type of thing. Like that was his answer. And this was so obviously like what happened. Yeah. It's like, hey, here's the dialogue. Okay, but fine. And then we all know that the beating of the chest thing that's become this iconic thing in college football stadiums was his warm up where Scorsese and DiCaprio were like, holy shit, just do that. Yeah. With a common denominator. Seriously, every line in that conversation is so perfect in selling it. And it's actually like a good thing he doesn't back. You know what I'm saying? Oh, like it's, I, it's 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 unsustainable, right? You couldn't, yeah. Like don't show up again in the movie. The the thing that's also like I didn't notice until I rewatched. I mean, I've re- seen this movie in total probably five or six times, but rewatching it this week, I forgot what an amazing com- like physical actor he is. Like before they go to lunch, when the clock strikes, and he's like, "Let's fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of like throws his arms down, <laughs> but he just does this like thrust, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" He's kind of a college like, football yeah. coach, you know, racing down the sidelines, and he's like, he peers in during the lunch, and then he pulls back, and he's kind of moving his body all around. No, he's it's seriously, it's it's so perfect, and it also makes you think that like sometimes with him, you're like, I could see you doing this in yeah, real yeah, life. Yeah. Oh, I I definitely could see the masturbation speech being <laughs> something he would say at like a bar. You subscribe to that theory? I don't think I actually can. How do you stay no. loose? You do two, three, four pods a day. How do you stay loose? It's all mustard up here, man. It's all acidic. Uh, <laughs> next scene, Donnie Azoff walks into a diner. You show me a check for $72,000. I quit my job. I come work for you. I tell you what. You show me a pay stuff for $72,000 on it, I quit my job right now and I work for you. Hey, Paulie, what's up? No, yeah, you know, everything's fine. Hey, listen, I quit. And he did quit his job. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm that's, that's, that's good stuff. That's, that's also very Long Island. Guy who's very wealthy just sitting in a diner having breakfast. It's just weird. Why is that guy eating at a diner? But that is Long Island to me. I want to I talk about the run this movie goes on just to start with. And how you think in your mind, you're like, oh, yeah, and then there's that scene with Donnie, and then there's a Mark Hanna scene, and there, there's, you know, like the Spike Jones scene or whatever. And you don't realize until you're watching that they're just back-to-back-to-back scenes. And and that is kind of remarkable in and of itself. The way also in which, like, Jonah in that scene introduces this idea of, like, this the grotesque. It's like the, the, the with the capped teeth and like the different like the different patterns of his shirt. Incredible. And he's just like, show me a pay stub. Show me. Your, it's so it's so base. It's like, I just want to see the money and I will give you my life. He makes the trade right there. The thing about this is like. Jonah shouldn't be able to make this character work. It should The character shouldn't even work in the movie. And there's some like real life stuff to talk about with a real guy who he's portraying here. But everything about it is so absurdist. Marrying your cousin, selling children's furniture, wearing that shirt that Chris is talking about. I quit my job. I come work for you smoking crack yeah. after meeting someone like four days ago. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And yet the whole time I'm kind of like, yeah, I, 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 I buy this. I buy that this is the bond that these two fucking weird animals created between one another. You know, the hard part is, is because it's freaking DiCaprio and he's like perfect mm-hmm. that you go, they'd never hang out. Yeah. And it's kind of like my, my 
cousin Greg succession theory where I go, eventually they'd be like, hey, tell this fucking tall drink of water to beat it. <laughs> yeah. Like, why is he yeah. involved in every scene? Why is Greg on the yacht? And what I realized is like, yeah, but I like Greg's scenes. Yeah. Like, what are Greg sprinkles? What are Greg sprinkles? <laughs> every Greg scene is kind of funny. Yeah. So it's like, you know what? Yeah, he wouldn't normally. This family would have essentially at some point said like, you don't get to just show up and now you're in the high level meetings. Right. Um, but it works and it's better TV. And for this, when it, when Donnie first shows up, I'm like, oh, like, is this, does any, everything you just said in the timeline, does that make any sense whatsoever? And then you're like, yeah, but who are we talking about? We're talking about Belfort here. Yeah. These are so, guys who make bad decisions. Yeah. 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 Right. Like all they do. It's like Charles Schwab. He's like, yeah, <laughs> I need a guy who wants to work out of a garage with me. You That's know? right. That's right. Next scene, uh, meeting the Duchess of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Um, can't overstate what a, what a lightning bolt Marco Robbie was on the world. We accept her as a Oscar nominated, very famous movie star. Now it was only six years ago. Um, reportedly she was 23 at the time. There's some dispute about Margot Robbie's real age, but let's just say she was 23 at the time comes from Australia and she's introduced as Jordan Belfort's dream girl. Um, and it's a great, great sequence where you go from that big beach house party straight into, she's got the douchebag boyfriend on her arm mm-hmm. and he's, what's that guy's name? Brooks. Blair? Blair. Yeah, Blair. <laughs> and that that What's is wrong with Blair. <laughs> no, no, no shots to the Blairs out there. Um How many more times are you going to ask her about the jet ski? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know, maybe three or more times. <laughs> It's such a great comeback. I love that you just tossed out the Margot Robbie age thing. Like, it's just like Buddy Healed. We're just going to skip right over it. You know, it's a great comp. There's a lot of like, ha- have we seen a birth certificate? I don't know. It's just- what are you calling her, Albert Pujols? <laughs> I, yeah, because I think I read when I was reading about the tryout, it was 23 and 26 of the two ages that I've seen. We'll I'm ne- not worried about it. We'll never know. She's a wonderful actor. Uh, the, I have this written down as the Smokestack Lightning Bacchanalia. This is the office party in which the marching band and I, I guess also throwing the little people the is shaving. in that scene and the head shaving and then the strippers come in. And it's one of the most ecstatic pieces of filmmaking you'll ever see in your life. And it feels like this should be the happiest these guys are in the world. These guys, these, these, this scum of the earth, all they want is drugs and women and money. And it's a visual representation of all those things. And then just as the strippers come together, just as they're about to meet for what I guess is like a slap fight, this old weird blues song comes up. And it's got an echo on it, and the lighting starts to get dark. Strobe, yeah. And you realize that, like, that's hell. They're in hell. Like, they, they have created hell on Earth. And there's a and they're fucking demons. Yes. Yeah. They're and, like, this is cool. We did it. And they love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they that's where they belong. And there's a one vanishing moment where the camera moves in on DiCaprio, and he just looks like a little bit despairing. He's not smiling. He's kind of like looking away, and he starts to walk off the stage and walk away. These the moves like this are very subtle. They're, the more obvious one is later in the movie when they talk about the guy who married the woman who they double teamed, who then went on to kill himself. There's a couple of moments in the movie where you're like, oh, there's something really, really dark under the surface of this movie. But that scene sticks out to me so much because Brevere filmmaking, and it kind of tells you the story of like this not even seedy underbelly. It's the overbelly of this time in American financial markets. You know, these guys could run roughshod as Robin Hoods for themselves. The first time I saw that scene, I was like, okay. 
this is too much. And it was like, what's about to happen here? Braveheart style? Like, what do we got here? We got two lines advancing towards each other, but they're strippers. And the shaved head thing was like weird. Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of the whole point. You know, like when I've gone back and watched it again, it's like, no, no, I want to punch you in the face with the absurdity of what this is. If If you're confused at all, just, just so you know, like, this is what it is. And there's a lot of research on that one that says it's just a combination of a bunch of things. That, that didn't all like, happen at once. Didn't all happen at once. You know, the marching band and the whole thing. But I, I think it was almost just to be like, no, no, we know. We, we're not doing this because we think this is amazing cinema. We're doing this because we know it's absurd. And we want you to know it's absurd and just move on. But when I first saw it, and this is other kind of a nitpick thing. I hate the way this movie is scored. It's my biggest beef with the movie. Oh, wow. I think... Too much music. It's way too much music. There's one riff where it goes blues into like an 80s song into Foo Fighters. So the the years aren't even close to adding up. And I don't think the blues, it's Scorsese loving the blues and putting in as much blues stuff as he loves. Right. And it's like, oh, you know what CD I love? That CD. Okay, let's just put it in there. Um, Clearly no one could tell him, hey, you know what? Like, again, I'm the guy that... Didn't like the Tom Waits open for The Wire and thought The Wire should have always been hip-hop, and I'm afraid to even say that out loud. Um, But that's pretty much the only thing. And in that scene in particular, I'm like, this doesn't even make any sense. We could have saved that for nitpick, but it's an interesting conversation. It's uh, The movie, I think, got introduced to audiences with the Kanye West song in the trailer, and there was an expectation that it was going to be one way. And then if you look at the... It's basically the, uh, the arc of pop music is on the soundtrack. It's 40s blues and 50s kind of like a like jazz pop and 60s rock and roll. And Billy Joel. And then 70s pop. And yeah. then those 80s songs, like the Romeo Void song. Um, and all the way into Foo Fighters and the the Lemonheads cover of Mrs. Robinson. And you have, like, this long history of music. And it's not chronologically executed, you're right. Like, it doesn't really fit together if you try to match the years. But Scorsese and Robbie Robertson of the band have a long-term partnership, and you can— you can feel Robbie Robertson in Scorsese's ear during this movie. It's like, back to Howlin' Wolf. Let's go over to this song over here. Let's get Bo Diddley in and over here. Let's go to this song over here. This will be the right thing over here. And I think in the same way that the movie is about overconsumption, I think the music is about overconsumption. Yeah, it's excess. Yeah. Yeah. So you think it's a conscious art thing? I think it was just, I love all this music and the movie's three and a half hours. It, and I know you guys disagree with me. I mean, but no, I, no, like, no, it has moments where both. I'm like. But I think that if you had a score, if this just had like theme music playing over it, I think it plays really different. The 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 radio dial nature of it, where it's just constantly flipping back and forth, feels very true to this guy's coked out like perception of the world. And it would have been hard to just do the talking heads Wall Street thing. Yeah. Uh, which is perfect, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Um, that's his perfectly aligned music that I, I think I've ever seen in a movie. Right. And uh, this, I remember in the beginning, and I don't I don't know, because I really like all kinds of music. This isn't a taste thing. No, it's, it's just, there it's are like, moments where I'm like, I'm getting yeah. knocked, like, it's almost like one of those places you like the music and the guy keeps hitting next song before you're even on to the like, like. It's a good way to describe it. Um, next scene, I've got like six more scenes here. Uh, the Steve Madden IPO. My killers. My warriors, my telephone terrorists, you know, like that whole, that speech. Um, and then Madden bombing and then just being like, get out of here. Incredible. Yeah. Madden, who is played by Jake Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman's son. Uh, the bachelor party, wedding, and dance sequence. Famously a, a, a gif now, Leo, busting a move. He actually is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Great. Good dancer, great dancer. Yeah. Did we know that prior to that? Is there a thing he can't do? 
I just remember seeing like I think it. She was a she was a team whose hats to wear. <laughs> he sucks at that. Like it'll be like Auburn one day and then Michigan the next day. <laughs> I think it's just about the hat. Yeah, you know, with him, I think he gets a. I'll even give him a pass on mixing up SEC and Big Ten teams because he's just going to go dark hat if he's at a Lakers game. <laughs> but I think what is what is the public Leo low. A little bit of a dad bod with mm-hmm. some super soakers running around with models. Yeah. So Even, I feel yeah. like that would be the highest high That's of my bit, life yeah, ever. Right. Where he's still wearing like uh, like calf length socks with vans riding a city bike. But then it's like, oh, that's the that's that's a, just like with an Israeli supermodel next to him. Yeah. But no, that's a new character he's working on. This <laughs> yeah, new star- right. He's this guy, this startup guy. <laughs> it's his own version of Borat. <laughs> next scene, daddy doesn't get to touch mommy. Is this a, is this rewatchable? Uh, <laughs> it's just like a, it's, this is like a scene in the movie that I guess is good. Am I like time to watch the daddy doesn't get to touch touch mommy scene on YouTube? You ever recreate this scene with your wife? I do not. Okay. No. Apparently, the scene's true. <laughs> is it? Yeah. I that, buy it. that it really happened in that. Uh, Rocco and Rocco. Got yeah, to watch. Rocco. It, my favorite Robbie part of this whole thing is that right after this movie came out, every NBA player followed her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, man. It was like, <laughs> un- and the thing is, if like you've ever seen her when she's not made it, she's like a kind of an understated, like, I remember there were some photos of her going around when she got engaged, I think, or something like that. But like Robbie became, like, I don't know if it was a pivot from Christina Hendricks' Mad Men. Right. Where, were a lot of NBA players following Christina Hendricks? I don't, I, I wasn't as locked into that <laughs> research. <laughs> I'm not talking about like drive Christina Hendricks, which I like to also call obtainable Christina Hendricks. Yes. But Robbie, I'm, I'm like, I think December 26th, yeah. like the entire Central Division followed her. Yeah. This is 2012. <laughs> so it's like Hibbert's still in the game. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Hibbert is like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And it would like, if, for you, Danny if, Granger. if, yeah. if yeah. you clicked on her, her, her bio or like whatever her, her page would be, it would be like followed. And then you just, you know, because every now and I like always was fascinated, like kind of perusing yeah, this stuff. Like it clippers. was just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Next scene, Jordan invites the FBI onto his yacht. And you know what I was just thinking too? The fucking hero that I'm going to be back at the office when the Bureau seizes this fucking boat because I mean, fucking he fuck, fuck, Jordan. Look at this thing. <laughs> it's beautiful. If you get the beautiful girls there, it's wonderful. <laughs> All right, get the fuck off oh, my boat. I'm sure we'll be seeing each other Real soon. I'm sure. Good luck on that subway ride home to your miserable, ugly fucking wives. I'm going to have Heidi lick some caviar off my balls in the meantime. Hey, you guys want to take some lobsters for your ride home? Fucking miserable pricks. I know you can't afford them. Fucking cheap. Phenomenal shit. Yeah. Next scene, I'm not leaving. You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team, cause I ain't going nowhere! This is probably like in the, in, this is the clubhouse favorite. One of the more rewatchable scenes in any movie in the last decade, I would say. It's it's simultaneously like disgusting and beautiful and it gets me fired up. You know what I like about it? In it's um, you know, a lot of the, the stuff is very straightforward. Like, hey, here's the beginning of the scene. I'm gonna do something incredibly fucked up onto the next one. But this 
felt like in this movie, and and I I really like when he's he's sober at the pool and Donnie comes by. Yeah. We'll get to that a little bit later, but like you could almost lose track of like, wait a minute, where's where's the dialogue that surprises me? Where is something that happens that I didn't expect? Where where is there some growth or some? And that's what this scene finally is, and that not the growth, but it is a realization midway through it. I'm gonna. This is who I am, and I'm not. I can't, and it's like the most honest part of it too. And that was, I don't want to say it was needed because again, it's it's what happened. Like he's like, fuck it, I'm not, I'm not leaving. It's such a perfect. It is kind of the field of dreams moment in the movie. It's a heartstring tugging slash inspirational moment that is also the most self-aggrandizing garbage of all time. The whole Kimmy Belzer back and forth that he has is nice and it weirdly moves me, but he basically forces a woman to tell a room full of screaming dudes how much money he gave her, which is just fucking weird. <laughs> like he's like, he's a, like I he's fucking a, love you, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a bad guy. Yeah. And nevertheless, he has inspired this room full of baboons. It's great. Yeah. You asked me for 5,000, give you 25,000. Like she kind of sucks too. Like yeah. I, I don't really like her. Yeah, when she's doing it. the snapping. And yeah, all yeah, that. the yeah. snapping thing, and then the the wiping off the yeah. shoulder. But I, I think that's kind of the point, right? Right. It is. It so is. no, you're not supposed to like Aya Cash's character. You're not supposed right. to like any, but like none of the people were like, oh, I wonder if this guy's gonna be cool. Nope. Uh, the lemon quaaludes. The lemon ludes. Age and, the best or the worst. Yeah, they're still aging. They've lacked their. They lost their potency. I don't. If you can get your hands on some, I would encourage you to check them out. Um, I wonder if there's a thriving lewd community out there. It's got to be some Silk Road shit, right? Some deep web, some dark web. But I mean, like the finite nature of them, I, do they ever start circulating or like they ever start manufacturing? Again? Yeah, they're like Honus Wagner cards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's only six left. <laughs> Who's got them? Does Gretzky have a lewd? Yeah. You know, that's what we got to be asking ourselves. Um, <laughs> the Naomi yacht capsizes. Arguably the best scene. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Really fun. And also true. Is that true? Yep. Um, With the plane too? Was the the plane crashing also true? So that's what I was reading again, is that they like double check some of this stuff and that that part was true. Hmm. And just for him to be like, the whole thing, like if I'm dying, I'm not dying sober. I can't go down there. I will not die sober. Get those fucking loads. Okay. Go. Okay. And you're like, this is hilarious. Get this boat the is going ludes. down. Get the ludes. And <laughs> him him going through that. Like, you want to talk. I'm the, a master diver. <laughs> the ultimate wake-up call. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, some guys would be like, you know what? Had a few too many red wines and get a DUI on the way back from the country club. It's like, no, no, no. This guy's yacht. <laughs> capsized because he had to get through a storm to handle this laundered money. Right. And then the plane that came to get him crashed. <laughs> and he's looking at everybody like being in this rescue situation. And he's like, okay, maybe now. <laughs> I should chill out. Maybe, yeah, tone it down. Maybe I'll stop going out on the Sundays. <laughs> you know, I didn't put this scene down, but you mentioned it when Donnie comes over after he's been arrested and he's got the ankle bracelet on and they're having that back he's and forth about being sober and he's drinking an O'Doul's. <laughs> Which is really some of the funniest writing in the movie. <laughs> what he's like, you have to drink a bunch of those to get fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you want a beer, pal? Uh, what are you drinking? I what got this non-alcoholic shit. What's that? It's like a non-alcoholic beer. It's got no no alcohol. Is it beer? Yeah, with no alcohol. But you drink enough, and if you drink a lot, they get you fucked up. No, there's no alcohol. That's the fucking point. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I can get you beer if you want fucking. No, but I I don't drink. You remember? 
I don't drink anymore. Oh, you want to go inside and blow some lines of bacon powder? Because <laughs> <laughs> you drink a million of those? Well, then, then when he's like, wow, you know, is it cool? And he's like, fucking sucks, it sucks man. man. It's so boring. <laughs> it's so perfect. Uh, what scenes have I forgotten? Anything? Uh, well, the when he goes to uh, the investor circle. Oh, meeting Spike Jones And meets Spike Jones and sells Aerotine. Yes. Aerotine. Aerotine, yeah. Very hot stock right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a couple of brothers that are making radar detectors out of their garage. They're out in Dubuque. Maybe it's microwaves. I'm not sure, but you call the company's main line. Their mom, Dorothy, answers, and she is so sweet. The company. I actually don't know what else to do. I don't know anything else about them other than that. <laughs> Six cents a share. And we get to the, that little cutaway to the shed the Aerotine is in. Genius. Uh, and the, the, the cold call Stratton Oakmont speech, the script that he writes for the guys, which, I mean, you have to put in there just because of... Um, Moby Dick, and this is your harpoon, and everybody's like, "Who the fuck is Ahab?" <laughs> it's just like all, all the guys yelling at each other about Moby Dick. You schnooks will now be targeting the wealthiest one percent of Americans. We're talking about whales here, Moby fucking dicks. And with this script, which is now your new harpoon, I'm going to teach each and every one of you to be Captain Fucking Ahab. Get it? Huh? Captain who? Captain Ahab, from the fucking book, you from the book, motherfucker, from the book. Turn your fucking brain on. Fuck you. Listen to me. We're a new company with a new name. And, yeah, Lemon Ludes, Steve Madden, you, you hit all these other ones. I mean, I, I would also just, right before the boat uh, takes off, I really love when he finds out that Emma is dead. She was fine. Oh, you know, she's God, not that baby. Oh, God, that's so fucking terrible. Oh, it is terrible. You, you he's know. like so freaking out because of his money, but he's just like, that's terrible. <laughs> Captain Steve. Uh, the Spike Jones thing is, I'm really glad you brought it up though, because that is so perfectly executed. Yes. Because he's like, I, I, he's, he's, he gets the name of the company wrong. He's, <laughs> he's like wrong. He's like, it's a couple of these guys. And he's like selling. It's microwaves or radi- radars. Yeah, it's yeah. radar. It's radar detector or maybe microwaves. And he knows what a fucking clown he yeah. is. And he's trying to sell a stock to DiCaprio. And DiCaprio's, he's so perfect in the way he's like, what the hell is going on in here? And he's like, is this, uh, you know, and he's like, is this, it's perfectly delivered. I mean, just the difference between like a good actor and a great actor. And when the other guy's like, eh. <laughs> and there's just dudes eating slices of pizza. There's yeah. another guy screaming in a sweatsuit. The guy walks out of the bathroom and it's right in the office. So he just like walks right out and there's not even a hallway. <laughs> that scene is, uh, is I don't want to call it sneaky under it, but it, it's easy for that one to get lost in the debauchery of all the other and scenes. What does Spike Jones say? He's like, if you, if you sell $10,000 worth of stock, I'll blow you. And he's just like, I hope I get to do it. Like, yeah. he's, he's like, like I, and I want it to happen. And, and he puts his hands together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the whole script thing and the cross-cutting between the different guys delivering Jordan's script and his whole, like, all the gestures that he's doing while he's doing it on, uh, on the answering machine. And then when they cut into the, the Stratton Oakmont offices and everybody's walking around being like, I'm the vice president of Stratton Oakmont. I intend to be one of the highest earners at my firm. And I won't get there by steering you wrong. Like, it's just such a great moment. What a fucking idiot. The one thing I know about in this world is airlines. And Kushan Airlines is the future of airlines. Get in now. My name is Nikki Koskov, Chester Ming, and I am a senior, senior vice, vice president with Stratton Oakmont. 
There's a bunch of montages like that later when they're being interrogated by the SEC. Oh, yeah. There's similar sort of montage yes, cutting like that. that is my that. name. Yes. <laughs> Who's <laughs> What kind of a name is that? That is my name. Um, any Anything else, Ryan? What am I leaving off? Um, apparently, I just wanted to clean up this thing because I, I'm, a, I'm a real stickler for the details, but the plane that went to pick him up was a couple days later. Okay, but it did explode. It, yeah, but it wasn't in the moment. Okay. Like, actually, the story about the sinking ship is even crazier than what happened in the movie. But this, the plane, because I knew that was sort of something. I know the timeline. I'm kind of screwing up the podcast. No, right no, no, no. That's fine. But fine. I don't want some guy, you know, listening to half the podcast, telling some girl he just met. Be like, yeah, that was true. It happened in the same <laughs> moment. Said, and then it's like, yeah. you know, then I lied to him. <laughs> just tweet at uh, Rosillo <laughs> yeah. for getting it right and saying thank you very much. We'll set much. up an email yeah. address for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah for no, sure. that'd be good. That's good. Maybe some hoodies. <laughs> Suggestion box. <laughs> uh who what what's the most rewatchable scene it's it's look i I don't think it's almost like shack early shack fantasy basketball like he's not allowed to be picked Mm -hmm. i don't think we mcconaughey shouldn't be eligible because it's it's the clear runaway for me i i don't know i think it's between this lemon ludes and i'm not leaving i'm going i'm not leaving i'm gonna go mcconaughey I, i just i watched that scene like 15 times this week it's unreal yeah, so I, I would just, all right, if it's eligible to be picked, then I, there's, there's really no debate for me on it. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place I can listen to The Ringer's amazing new podcast, Sonic Boom, How Seattle Lost Its Team, hosted by our very own Jordan Ritterkahn. If you're a fan of sports, great investigative journalism, or both, this is definitely a podcast you can't miss. I worked closely with Jordan on Sonic Boom, and I must tell you that it is one of the best things we've done here at The Ringer, so I hope you'll check it out. Along with Sonic Boom, Luminary offers more than 40 podcasts you can't find anywhere else, including two more from The Ringer. That includes Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999, and our rewatchable spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download and gives you access to way more than just their own content. You can use it to listen to thousands of other shows, including this one. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link rewatch. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash rewatch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash rewatch. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. What's age the best? I'm going to start with a very serious one. The theme of wealth being an incurable <laughs> pox that destroys life from inside and out. Whoa, I had no idea we were doing this before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, just keeping in mind that only being motivated by money, probably, that's that's aging well. I think it's good to be motivated by money, but maybe not only money. Yeah, my what's age the best is actually a lot of the asides uh, that happens, like like you mentioned before, when he's like the guy who they, who marries the girl that they've all had their way with and uh, then kills himself. The fact that Brad has a heart attack at 35, had a heart attack at 35, just, just like... Mozart, right? yes, just like Mozart. Poor Brad. We got. Can't wait to get to Burns. And off. then all the asides that are essentially like he starts trying to explain a financial thing, like way like the way they do in Big Short, and then they'll yeah, have the like IPO Bourdain thing. or somebody yeah. or Margot mm-hmm. Robbie or whatever. He just like is like you don't give a shit about this, and he kind of like yada yada is it, or he says like it really reminds me of the way Trump talks, where like the the little aside at the end, or like the queens yeah the flourish at the end is just like and it's always bragging or it's always like you're too stupid to need to know about this and that kind of like attitude i think is really age the best obviously it's really we've seen that that is that is a like a a way of thinking that kind of uh resonates the other thing that i think is age the best related to this is the idea that 
not having wealth is also unacceptable. You know, it's not, there's that moment at the end when Kyle Chandler is on the subway and he's like, fuck. Like, I got him, but I'm yeah. on the subway. This sucks. Like, that's, that also is purposeful. Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio are wealthy and comfortable and they know that life can be a lot easier and better when you have it. It's just how you get it and whether you're happy with what you've chosen to do is an interesting theme to look at in the movie that is more nuanced than just these guys suck. There's so many movies now where I, you can get like overloaded on characters, overloaded on actors, but I, I think in a way we're being fed what we want. You know, mm-hmm. like one simple storyline with one. It's like, no, 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 no. I need, I need all these different things. When Favreau shows up, you're like, okay, what do we, what do we got here? And, and Favreau is always kind of an interesting character now in all sorts of things because he's such a great director. But he does a really good job kind of playing these side roles. Yeah. Uh, I think he's really, really good at it. And the aging, the best part is just how many times you'll, you'll, we go, okay, because what's, what's this controversy? And it's like, yep, you know, all this federal tax money being spent investigating this and then on and on and on and on and on. And you're like, and what happened? Mm-hmm. What ended up happening? Like all the amount of time and yeah. all Three the Three years in white collar prison. Right. To, to investigate baseball players and all this shit because it sounds good in congressional hearings and there's such a high approval rating. Like if you're sitting there be like, what about the children and steroids in baseball? Like there's very few people being like, hey, I don't give a shit. Um, so it's like a win all kind of type of, you know, power play. And look, all the, all those people get up there as a hearings and they're like, just hoping they get their airtime when I'm like, you know, do you really care? And with this, when you read into the investigation, it took 10 years. And then we still almost had him just deciding to pay a fine and step down from Stratton Oakmont. Right. And he was going to be fine. And he still couldn't. And that was kind of one of those scenes of the mm-hmm. rounding out of the characters. It doesn't happen frequently in the movie where Favreau is with him. Reiner's with him. And they're like, Hey, what do you still want? And he's telling them what he, they want to hear. And he, you can tell at that point, like deep down, he doesn't give a shit. It's like, no, no, you're actually going to get kind of a get out of jail free card right. for everything you just did if you pay this fine and you listen to me because it's the SEC. But if it's the FBI and you're fighting him and then he screws up and yet still the end of the movie goes, oh, I forgot when you go to prison and you're rich, like you don't really go to prison. Yeah. And I think it's actually like one of the things that I think people had a hard time wrapping their mind around was the last few scenes with Robbie's character. Uh, because obviously it's played in a much different way and it's much more stark how fucked up he is and how evil he is. And they need that scene, those scenes in there, not only because I'm sure they're true, but also because it shows just the disparity of like how much this guy gets off. Like he's like, he goes to to white collar jail, even though like he commits real crimes. He He beats up his his wife and beats up his wife. Yeah. Yeah, Like it's, and he's still like, I'm playing tennis, you know, and now, and now I'm getting public speaking engagement fees. Yeah. There's a kind of amazing dissonance between the idea of Belfort being all about making this movie. And even though the movie largely is sort of like absurdistly celebrates the things that he accomplished and did and consumed, you know, that sequence which is basically the conclusion of the movie in a lot of ways is, is awful. He is an awful, violent person and it's obvious. And yet he crops up in that cameo at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like he participates. He is a part of telling this story. It's, it's, it's difficult to, 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 to kind of rationalize those, those two things, both of those things being true. Yeah. There's a lot to get into as far as like, okay, what's, what's real about that? Cause he's denied certain things. Um, and, and the ex-wife is, you know, they, they actually get along. They both live in my town, mm. which is, I don't, not like I'm running into them, but, uh, 
they both live in Manhattan Beach. And you guys don't you don't drop a lewd every now and then. <laughs> no, no, I think I jogged by his house. Drop, drop a lewd and watch Clemson. Weird, Let's do it. Weird flex. Uh, but you know the the amount that he was supposed to pay in these fines, like that's debatable. Mm-hmm. Whether or not any of that stuff has happened, so I don't I don't know what it was. Like, hey, they bought the rights to his book. They wanted it badly, and they made this amazing movie. But maybe it was a way at the end to remind you, like, this guy did some awful shit. Like, this is a funny, entertaining story. Well, he does to some watch awful it. shit on the, on the, the international flight he does, takes when he, think, when he wakes up and he's seatbelted to the chair. But it's played in a much more, like, carnival-esque way. Where right. it's like this, like, fucking, like, it's Yeah, like I mean, montage. we could do that. We could do that. Like, and I don't like doing those qualifiers. Like, look, any, any sane person watching the scenes oh, knows, yeah. like, none of this is an but endorsement. But I just mean, like, the way that they but, film it and present it is different at the end than it is in, in the middle of the It's the, the crash. Yeah, He's right. having the crash. Right. Which is, it's all... There's a big stock metaphor in the whole thing, too. It's kind of the way you play with money and the risk that you take and the way that it can be taken away from you very quickly because you make bad decisions and you hurt people. It's a, it's all very precise while feeling, like I said at the beginning, very loose. Um, I wrote down the soundtrack as aging the best, but Ryan says no to that. Um, it just never aged for me, so it didn't, you know. Uh, but I expect to be on an island on that one. Yeah, I, I like the soundtrack. I do, too. Um I said this sort of unreliable narrator and talking to the camera stuff, which in a lot of movies is considered like a crutch and bad writing and narration voiceover is considered bad writing. In this movie, I feel like it's kind of essential. I feel like you kind of need to be inside of his brain to get the character, to get what what he's shooting for and why there needs to be that come down. Once you have it in a movie that's worth watching, though, and then you try to imagine, like imagine Rounders without Matt Damon same, narrating. Same thing. And you go, that movie would be totally different. It just would. So I can understand like, hey, it's a crutch, but especially with this, when it's an adapted autobiography and he's breaking, well, you know, I'm not saying because The Office was successful that now all of a sudden, but it's true. I mean, other TV shows wanted to do it. I don't know if Terrence Winter was like, hey, I want it to be just like The Office, but darker. Right. I doubt that was the case. And if you look, this is, there's so many little things. Like when you guys mentioned the Lamborghini thing, like that's somebody, like that shit's always impressive to me. Right. Like you don't ever sit there and think of like, hey, I'm going to write out, okay, you know, Lamborghini down the Long Island Expressway, you know, he's inside, he's getting head. Um, it's like, you know what, let me, I mean, that's, that's, it's really like, you have to be kind of tuned that way to say, okay, how can I sell this in a way early in the movie that, that gets the audience to pay like a little bit more attention or, or knows like, oh, we're going to break some rules here Mm -hmm. and we're going to have some fun. It's just like when the plane crash happens and he's like, did you guys see that? It's like, that's, that's an incredible line to say, like, did you guys see that? It's bringing the audience in. It's also like calling into question the reliability of his perception but it's also not making a big show out of it because immediately he moves on from it. It's it's just like the way they use it in this movie is brilliant. Anything else aging the best? I think we hit it. The ones I had. What's your vote? Oh, I'm, I'm just Margot Robbie also. I think just the discovery of Margot Robbie and where she is in her career and, you know, what kind of, what place she has in, in the Hollywood firmament at this point is another one. I think she, in such a short amount of time from this, because she was so incredible, um, and I love the line where she's like, we're not going to be friends. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, cool. This isn't going to be like the normal cheating courtship here. It's just, I'm actually more in control of the situation than you are, despite like who you are, Belfort. She could do so many different kinds of comedy and, and acting in this movie, like where she she does the like emotional desperation at the end, but she's also really, she can go toe to toe with him and be like, who? Are you a fucking owl? Like, you know, who's Venice? <laughs> I, I, I forgot the Venice scene for most yeah. rewatchable scene. That also, that fight between them, is so funny 
And the back and forth that they're having when she keeps throwing the water in his face is unbelievable, too. Well, when DiCaprio, and this is the part where you're like, God, you know, it's easy to kind of forget, like, how insanely good he is. But when he's, and I'd love to know kind of how that was written and and what the direction was on it or how much it was him on his own. But she's throwing the water in his face and he think it's like, hey, look, Venice, it's not what you think. Mm-hmm. And she's paying a little bit more attention to him. And he's like, starts shimmying a little. <laughs> he's like, you know, don't you, you should be happy you've got a husband who's got a body like this or something like that. And keeps it together and you're like, what? And DiCaprio's just nailing, nailing it. Talk to me. Talk to me. Stop flexing your muscles, Jordan. You look like a fucking imbecile. Babe, come on, you should feel, you should feel happy you got a husband who's in such great shape like this, huh? Come here. Come on, give me a kiss. You look so beautiful right now. Come on. Kiss you? You look so beautiful. Kiss right you? Here. Yeah, give me one. Fuck you! Ah, uh, yes. My morning ritual. Do you believe, uh, well, you know the story about the trial, right? No. So, okay. So she's an unknown at this point. She goes in, she reads with DiCaprio, and apparently the instruction was that they were arguing, they're screaming at each other, and then they kiss. And she just decided to slap him across the face instead mm-hmm. and scream, fuck you. And at that point, Scorsese was like, that's the one. Done. Great stuff. And she said she just did it. She was like, I just needed to take a risk. I don't know if that becomes one of those things that, like, I'm repeating a story that isn't true, but it's out there. It sounds good, though. Yeah. Oh, what a Greek tragedy. <laughs> you had to pay the golf course person with cash with your hands. Um, what's age the worst? Um, I think that the takes that this was like a celebration of wealth were bad takes. And I don't agree with them. That's That, that hasn't aged well to me. Yeah. Uh, that the, the take economy around this movie was like, both a precursor to where we are now, but also like a very limited understanding of like the like that like there can only be one kind of art, which is like it's either a moral judgment on bad people or a celebration of good people. Um, and I think that they, there's a lot of room in between. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that stuff. I just I don't understand like what are the rules supposed to be about what kind of stories we can tell, mm-hmm. and if somebody wants to tell a story that doesn't end in the same formula. Like 99% of the movies that are out there, like let the person make that movie. And if they fail and you blame the person for not following the rules, then okay, cool. Like that's a win for you. But with this, like it doesn't have, it's not the simple, you know, I guess you could rephrase it and say, oh yeah, no, wait a minute, conflict, greater conflict. How am I going to get out of this? Is him getting out of this just being alive? All right. You know, we could do that thing with it, but I just... I wish more movies try to do this kind of stuff. There's nothing normal about this movie. It starts in the third act of Goodfellas and basically continues that energy throughout the entire movie. It's hard to discern what, like how much time has passed during any given scene. It's hard to discern whether or not what you're seeing is real or not or true or not. Like in terms of like the reality of the movie, it's such a unique and like, uh, idiosyncratic movie that to judge it alongside being like, well, I don't know if the lesson was really like clear uh, and we can get to the final shot of the movie because I think the lesson is quite clear when when you see that last shot. Um, I, yeah, the, the morality of it, I, I saw like Richard Corliss wrote something in Time at the time that this came out where he was just like, why the fuck would you, basically it was like, why would you want to spend three hours with these people? And like, that's actually bad to hide your head in the sand about that. And it's also bad to like not acknowledge the parts of you that are responding to parts of their behavior. Yeah, by the way, I I like reading about terrible people. Yeah. I do. It doesn't mean I want to fucking hang out with them, but if you read about some horrible act in history, 
I don't know. I, I've never, I've never quite understood that. Like I know on TV shows and, and stuff a little bit more because there's more investment and like, Hey, we want you to binge or we want you to be back with this group right. every single week. But for a story like this and for a movie, I don't, I don't know why, why the hell would I need my hand held to be told like, Hey, just so you know, like these are bad guys yeah. and you know, just be careful. It's, <laughs> like, an, it's an interesting time in the culture and in culture because you got the beginning of the second Obama term and the culture at large is it's breaking bad. You know, it is a lot of bad people doing bad things and feeling a little bit, maybe a lot of people felt safer in the, in the, the construction of the country or in their personal lives somehow, you know, we're out of the financial crisis. We're in a slightly more stable time and it feels safer, I think, to put a character like this on screen. But nevertheless, I think there are always going to be people who are like, fuck these guys. Mm-hmm. And that's their relationship to it. They don't want to I think it goes back to the things that we were talking about with Joker, where it's like the worry is that like in 10 years, there's guys who are quoting this movie as if it's just like, this is actually how I want to live my life. Right. Hey, how about this? If you don't like the movie, that's fine. But to suggest <laughs> movies like this shouldn't be made is like, what's what's the point? Yeah. I'd also say what's the worst possibly the runtime. Disagree, but I think it's only because they, the excess thing that we're talking about, the same thing that I like about the soundtrack, the same thing that I like about the writing, the same thing that I like about the camera work, the the over-the-topness of everything, I think, demands a maximalist length. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would, I agree with you. Per, I personally, as a viewer, agree with you. Like, Thelma Schoonmacher was like, I probably could have gotten this shorter, right. but we were under a little bit of a rush, and... To be honest, like the performances were so good, I just didn't want to cut anything out. Like we just didn't really want to take out Jonah Hill scenes. Like there's lots of scenes, like the scene where Jonah and Bernthal get arrested. Or where so I, I'm glad. I can't believe it just because I was waiting to like say that's actually a scene I've never liked, and it's true. Yeah, but it's it also doesn't. You could just handle that with like an aside. Like Brad got arrested. But you also get you get to see Jonah and Brad, the Quaalude King of Bayside, talk. Uh, it's one of the, but you know what it is? It's like one of those stupid, frustrating things in a movie or a TV show where you're like, well, if you had just given him the money. And I'm like, why do I care that Brad right. just got arrested? Why do I care that like, <laughs> but then Jonah, like, he's such a shithead because then it's like, let's pop these lemon quaaludes because I need to distract you from the fact that I just set off a timeline of events here that it's going to be a major, major problem. But that scene was more that it was it wasn't a bad scene. It was just that it frustrated me as a consumer. And then when I went and looked it up, it was like, no, that's how the, one of the guys ended up getting arrested. Because Jonah's character is a combination of a, a Donnie, bunch of different yeah, guys. Right. Yeah. That that scene is just um is just burned into my brain because it features a Nassau County police car. And I grew up in a household with a Nassau County cop and saw that badge that emblem all the time it was it's like looking at the new york jets logo in my house it was just there (laughs) all the time so for whatever reason i'd I'd like to keep it in uh before we get to the next category let's take a quick break Lacroix sparkling water delivers refreshment flavor and sparkle with an innocent twist of zero calories zero sweeteners and zero sodium Lacroix's 25 flavors are derived from natural sources with natural fruit essences the distinctive packaging, robust aroma, and natural essence make LaCroix the innocent alternative for health-conscious consumers. I personally am a LaCroix consumer. I recently crushed a bottle of raspberry in my own home. And let me tell you, it was delicious. The newest addition to the LaCroix family is hibiscus. The LaCroix family also includes six LaCroix curate flavors that have a bolder flavor profile and four Nicola flavors, all inclusive of the same innocent nutritionals. LaCroix sparkling waters are gluten-free, vegan, 
kosher, and non-GMO. Whole30 approved and environmentally friendly. LaCroix cans are sustainable and recyclable, and they're the first on the market to be produced without PBA liner. Enjoy LaCroix sparkling water, a healthy alternative for you and your lifestyle. LaCroix sparkling water is available nationwide. For a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixwater.com. For more information, join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. Let's go to casting what ifs. In 2007, Leonardo DiCaprio and Warner Brothers won a bidding war against Brad Pitt and Paramount Pictures for the rights to Jordan Belfort's memoir, The Wolf of Wall Street. Belfort made a million dollars on the movie rights. Does this movie make sense with Brad Pitt? Can it, can it work? Absolutely. Yeah? Sure. I think Brad is better at doing the darker thing. Mm. I think DiCaprio... This was be, a stretch for him. No, I think DiCaprio... Yeah. I, I, tell you, like, I almost needed this character. Not that DiCaprio was awesome in it. But if it was a less attractive guy that was a little rougher around the edges, which Pitt probably pulls off. Not like Pitt's guy. a little older, right? Yeah, he's yeah. got to yeah. be, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not like Pitt is not a good-looking guy. Sure. I mean, no. And coming up next, we're going to rank the hottest dudes in L.A. <laughs> but there there were times where I, I didn't want DiCaprio to look so great on the screen because you wanted to hate him a little bit more. Yeah. Is this making, is this, are we going to keep this in the podcast? I feel I like know, I need I to. I think that you're onto something though, because. <laughs> we need to develop Ryan's corner for the rewatchables. DiCaprio does a thing though, where like his, he's almost like, he uses his attractiveness, his handsomeness as a tool in the acting thing where it's like, I can push things so far because like, I'm just good to look at. Whereas like Damon is like, Damon plays into his own strengths as like a very relatable like, nice guy. You know what I mean? Like, in The Martian, you're just like, I'll just hang out with this guy for 90 minutes and listen to him talk. This is great. But DiCaprio, like, in this, in Django, will be like, I'm going to fucking pulverize your idea of what I should be. And I think so he does about, he does a really good job with that. And I think that Jordan's, his handsomeness in this movie, like, goes a long way to being like, why would you ever sell it, like, give in to this guy? Why would you ever, like, let this guy sell you anything? Even though it's over the phone a lot of the time. I think there's a couple of moments in the movie, especially the sequence when DiCaprio was talking to his his warriors, his telephone terrorists, and he's banging the microphone against his head, and he's kind of losing his mind. I don't know if I've ever seen Pitt go to that place. I don't know if Pitt can go to that place. So that would be my one case for I, I, I kind of need this to be Leo. And I didn't know Leo had that pitch when he did it, but he has it. So well, a lot of times, though, remember, like, the way it's like, hey, there's only so many roles that you would go, okay, Pitt will do this one, DiCaprio would do this one. I think a lot of them would be the same that's true i mean, I mean the aviator true. i feel like it's tough to see brad pitt as aviator mm-hmm. uh, see i feel that that to me i would buy more i could see that more, more than this like, yeah it's yeah. interesting that these guys that this happened though because these guys were also circling departed at the same time okay mm. but remember pitt in california yeah so that was pretty dark true and i thought years prior yeah right young, I mean, it is. young buck young Craig, call 1993 yeah i I don't know. Like, I think Pitt has a has like this this weird gear in him that is uh, is a little different. I mean, Fight Club, he's weird. Yeah, that's true. The Fight Club thing. That's true, and he's pretty funny and and very dark. Okay, Chris Evans and Joseph Gordon Levitt auditioned for a role in this movie. I don't know what role it is. What role could these guys I mean, have played? Those, those guys would have gone for Donnie, right? Could you imagine Chris Evans as Donnie? That doesn't seem right. No, 
I mean, Jonah took like 60 grand to be in this movie. He did. 60 grand. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's a, that's he a told Stern that in an interview. Yeah. It was like, and hey. didn't Leo have like points on the box office? Like, so like Leo made like a ton of money off of this. It's also, it's not like Jonah was just some kid trying to get in a Scorsese movie. He'd already been nominated for Moneyball and he was already in Superbad and a bunch of hit comedies. And he took 60 grand. Amazing. Apparently he flew to see DiCaprio. And he, this is the story that he tells Howard Stern that he was like, I joked to Leo. I was like, you know, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. You got to tell Scorsese. And if you do cast somebody else, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and then he put on like the cap teeth thing and he would practice talking with him. Yeah. And he would, he would call people on the phone apparently. Um, as great as the money ball thing was, I mean, you're still playing essentially Paul D. Podesta. Like, sure. Okay, cool. OBP. Uh, this, this, I actually can't believe he's nominated for that role. And it didn't win for this. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it's who you're going up against, just like the college football playoff. But mm-hmm. this is, this is, he was so strong and unique and weird. And, and I'll be honest, like, there's certain scenes I don't like him because it's too much. The even Donnie though, character, right? Yeah. But it's 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 okay. Like I'm not I'm not saying. Oh, actually, there's some like when I he's he jerking did. off in, in the yeah. at the pool house. But that what you're talking about too, Chris, earlier with the kind of like almost like the Trumpies Queens talking thing. That scene when he asked him, he's like, "I mean, there's some rumors about you. There's some things going around." He's like, "What are you what are you, what are you hearing?" He's like, "Well, you know, the thing with your cousin." And he's like, "It's not like well, you know. Look, we grew up together, and she grew up hot. You know, she right. fucking grew up hot. And all my friends were trying to fuck, you know. And I, I was, I'm not gonna let someone." You know, one of these assholes fuck my cousin. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I use the cousin thing as like, yeah, yeah. like an end with it. I'm, I'm not going to let someone else fuck my cousin. You what? know, if anyone's going to fuck my cousin, it's, it's going to be me out of, out of respect. You know, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just a weird. No, the best New York the archetype best person that, that he just, he, he crushes it. And then the next level of that that only Jonah could have done is the. You're free. What if something like that happened? I basically, you know, if the kid was retarded, I would, I would, you know, drive it up to the country and just like, you know, open the door and let us say, you're free now. You know, like run free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good time to take her out to, to the meadow and just be like, you're free. Open the car door. <laughs> More casting what ifs. Blake Lively and Rosie Huntington Whitley were considered to play Naomi. I know you've got some Blake Lively thoughts, Ryan. I would have been fine with it. Okay. <laughs> Teresa Palmer and Amber Heard auditioned for Naomi before Mar- Margot Robbie was cast. I think her being an unknown was very helpful here. I think it would have been wonderful to have Blake Lively at the height of her post of the town. She would have been experience. fine. She could have nailed that. Yeah. She would have been, she would have been great. But like Robbie, oh, Robbie became this. If, if Blake Lively can't reach the Margot Robbie phenomenon post Sky. Yeah. Excuse Sky. me. No, Can no, just, just keep it as Sky because yeah. I think it's like almost like her Lamada. Yeah, know, shine, she, uh, <laughs> shine, shine. You know, look if if, if more NBA guys weren't going to fire fire on Blake Lively after playing Shine, <laughs> then I don't I don't know what the problem yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, one other thing about Robbie that I want to point out here is that she's just doing Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny, and it's okay. It's actually okay that she's doing that. Wow, you just ruined the role. But the voice is. Tomei. Think of her when, because she says, you know, Buick Skylock. That's the very famous thing that she says Mm -hmm. over and over again in My Cousin Vinny. And what is the name of Jordan and and Naomi's daughter? Skylar. Skylar. Yeah. Same thing. Just putting that out there. Olivia Wilde also auditioned for the role of Naomi LaPaglia, but was deemed too old to play Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, even though he's actually 10 years older. God. Tough beat. Tough business. Julie Andrews was considered to play Aunt Emma 
before Joanna Lumley was cast, Miss Andrews had undergone a titanium ankle implant and was convalescing at the time of the role offer. Probably for the best. Could Just you imagine for all the Mary Poppins people out there? Leo trying to bang Julie Andrews. Yeah. That's complicated. That's such a <laughs> great fucked up scene. I know. It's, it's really just this extra sneaky bit. Like, just in case. Yeah, it wasn't like we needed more evidence that Jordan Belfort was a bad guy. It was just, oh, while I'm here in England. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. People really wanted, um, for a time, Ridley Scott to direct this movie. What do you think this movie is like if Ridley Scott makes it? You're a Ridley it's Scott like head. It's like 40 minutes shorter, uh-huh. but not that much shorter. You know, it's like two and a half hours. But the director's cut's four and a half hours. And then I think... Uh, it's less chaotic. That probably has some pretty amazing scenes. I don't know. It's 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 really like I think that the thing that Scorsese related to in the in the subject matter was the addiction stuff and the throwing your life away for cocaine and what it does to you. And he talked about that a lot on the promo circuit for this movie. And I I don't know anything about really Scott's like personal life, but it doesn't seem like that's like a huge like theme that he returns to a lot over the course of there'd his be life. less dialogue longer yeah. driving scenes you know a lot of time in that the lead scene right. probably would have been pretty like like much more like excited much more like kingdom of heaven mm. you know sure yeah <laughs> definitely the Dion waiters award for the biggest heat check is this the hardest one we've ever done it's up there i'm gonna go from what i perceive to be least to greatest okay bo deedle is bo deedle are you fucking high i can't answer the more fbi <laughs> Jordan, are you on the fucking phone? <laughs> wow, your Bo Deedle is pretty good. Thanks, that's really good. Thanks, he, man. He used to. Now you'll know this. Like he was, he was one of Imus's guys. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He used to like recurring character on the show. So would he just call up and be like, "Here's the here's." I think the he'd be in studio. He'd be like New York's top cop, and then he was a PI. Yeah, and then he kind of transformed into like a conservative pundit, and he was kind of like Rudy is the best mayor we've ever had. He cleaned up the streets. He would, like, talk about that. A lot of Yankees and Mets fans at the time agreed with yeah, that Rudy yeah. assessment when he just gave away two stadiums. Right. <laughs> not, not, not ideal. Um, but he also is, like, an object of obsession for Scorsese and Spike Lee and all these guys who see him as, like, a an institution in New York in a lot of ways. You know, he's always in the tabloids. He's always talking about things. But, I, but I think, like, way. for people that may have never known that, you know, that are listening to this podcast now, you know, just in another part of the country, like, he was a a regular that was like this representative of yeah. New York. So for yes. them to cast him and he's good in it. He is good. He reminds me of like Curtis Sola too, where it's just like that time when it would just be like, let's just have this guy in a red beret comment on like crime and punishment in the society. Yeah. He was on New York one a lot yeah. too, Bo Deedle. And uh, you know, he's also in uh he's been in a couple of movies. I think he's in 25th hour. He's also in um, the Irishman. He has a pr- prominent role in the oh, Irishman wow. as a, as a mob boss. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah so I haven't seen it. He and Marty have a relationship. Kristen Milioti as Jordan's She's first great. wife. She's really good. Um, she might be the most likable character in the entire she movie. She probably is. Only innocent person, really, in the whole movie. Yeah. Jake Hoffman is Steve Madden. That's Dustin Hoffman's son. It's kind of a kind of a, the opposite. It's like a cold check yeah. from Jake Hoffman. A purposeful <laughs> cold check. It's kind of like Mikhail Bridges or <laughs> yeah. something. You know, it yeah. comes in, Cooler. runs around a little bit, <laughs> gets off the Bridges. Okay. Wow. Uh, Shay Wiggum as Captain Ted Beecham. <laughs> we just got to batten down the hatches. <laughs> <laughs> Make a little chop be, out there. Gotta do a little chop. Uh, I might lose a few dishes. Joanna Lumley as Aunt Emma. You big Abfab guy? Uh, no, zero percent. Chris, Abfab? not really. No, me neither. Uh, she's Ro- one of the main two, right? And yes, maybe she's I'm a one percent Abfab guy. Okay. Um, there was two people. Rob Reiner as Max Belfort. <laughs> He's amazing. The Equalizer, the equalizer scene. scene. Who the fuck has the goddamn golf 
Lewis house on a Tuesday night? What? Damn it! You're gonna miss it! Oh, please, tell me something I don't know. I wait all week for the fucking equalizer, and I have to fucking... Hello? But as soon as he picked up the phone... Gene, how are you, Gene? He'd affect this weird British accent. Right, oh, Gene. Yeah, what the, the equalizer thing does, still doesn't make any sense, but it would just be like <laughs> this, this British thing that he was doing. And then the... Cheerio! You yeah. fucking half-wit! He's... Yeah, I mean, he is... He delivers. The TNA, TNE yeah. bit between him and Jonah, which seems very improvised, was great. These sides cure cancer. We had to buy champagne. And, and you ordered all the fucking sides. Tell them about the sides. I ordered the sides. So sides? Yeah. Sides? $26,000 yeah. worth of sides? <laughs> what are these sides? They cure cancer? The sides did cure cancer. That's the problem. They were there. That's why they were expensive. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I'm serious. I know. Stop. <laughs> when he's explaining marriage to his son. Yeah. And like Jordan still seems to be like, what? <laughs> like, you know, it's going away a little bit. You like, yeah, what, what's going on out there, dad? <laughs> Everything from the eyebrows down. <laughs> really? <laughs> John Bernthal is Brad. We're, this, I don't think we've talked enough about it. I've tried bringing up the Quailu King of Bayside a few times. His performance in the diner. Now she runs. Now she runs. When he's asking for the ketchup over and over again. Supply and demand. Hey, tell your sister. To, I was asking about her. <laughs> he's such a piece of shit. And right. it's like so weird. It's so visually incongruous to see him with these guys. But there's always like, there was always like, I remember growing up, there would be like a crew of like a normal guys. And then they'd have like one animal with them. And I'd just be like, <laughs> where did you guys find this fucking guy? And he would always be the one who had like the Adderall at the end of the night. or something. It was such well, a perfect cast. There's, there's a ton of red flags on this guy. <laughs> not, not just his character. But like whenever you're the guy that's still in your hometown yeah. and you're asking younger dudes to hang out with you, yeah. then you suck. And his working out thing is hilarious. And then, you know, bring the girls by, let them watch, let them watch, you know, just bring them by, let them watch. And he asks about the sister, hey, she doesn't want to talk to you anymore. Um, but that's another thing that like Belfort likes him the most yes. Yes, out of does. all of like the people. Like, like this is the guy who gets it. That's like, this it. Is, right. So that's he another one of those things. of urgency. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, whenever, whenever there's a guy listening right now and you know, it's been you in the past, but when you're asking high school guys to hang out and you're like 23 or 24, you, you, you know, things have not gone right. It's, 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 it's an incredible use of Bernthal as human wrecking ball you know like he he does one thing really well and he's a good actor and he's been in a lot of great parts and he's like a classically trained actor very thoughtful guy if you listen to him in interview. he is right yeah he's so very I don't, smart i don't know that much about him because like the walking dead thing kept going and yeah. going and going and i was like okay you know like eventually that show limits your range because it's and i'm not like knocking him for it but it just you know look the show did so freaking well that it was just look we're gonna keep keep, keep this thing going the whole time but i uh I could never quite like figure out like, do I love him or do I just like him? Or, you know, I know, I don't know that I'm ever fair enough with him. It's hard to judge his career in a lot of ways because he keeps getting cast as a violent meathead. You know, he was the Punisher. Like he's, th these are the kinds of parts people looked at him for. He is, however, right now in Ford versus Ferrari playing Lee Iacocca, which is. As a jacked guy. As a, as, as John Bernthal. Yeah. Which is bizarre because that's not what Lee Iacocca looks like. But he is Lee Iacocca in this movie. Old man Ferrari. Have you guys been checking out Kilborn's videos? <laughs> no. Yeah, his his catchphrase now is old man Ferrari. <laughs> and 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 Craig Kilborn saying old man Ferrari on Instagram is ten times fucking funnier than you think it is. I can't stop watching the videos. Is, is Kilborn the new Robert Evans? 
I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like, I look forward to a new Kilborn Instagram post, like Shit. a kid on Christmas morning. I, I, and I, follow, I, I didn't I, even know he had a presence. When you see a new one, and the thing is, they're all edited, and like, there's people, there's, there's, I, I'm getting there's sidetracked here. There's like a staff, but apparently, like, I had heard, and he didn't tell me this because I don't really talk to him, but it was a, like, his, his writing crew and all the people that he'd worked with intelligence for years just sort of missed him doing stuff. And they're doing these absurd videos on Instagram stories. And they're just on Instagram. No, like they're not only just stories, they're, they're other just straight up posts. And he's, he's been hooked on saying old man Ferrari. <laughs> and I can't get enough of it. So there you go. Go follow Craig Kilmore. Uh, Tremendous sidetrack conversation. Spike Jones as Dwayne, yeah. the investment uh, center leader. His skin is blotchy. Yeah. Like his shirt sucks. Spike it, Jones every, only is great in movies. Three Kings, Moneyball, <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. So we're watching the movie with my wife, like I said, and she turns to me and I'm, I'm looking at Spike and I'm looking at the blotchiness and I'm looking at the mustache, which is uneven. No, it's great. It's so perfect. And she's like, he's really cute in this. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And you, so now you I'm reevaluating. yourself now. Yeah, I'm reevaluating everything. Um, Jean Dujardin as Jean-Jacques Sorel. He's doing a lot. Um, so we... For those of you who were not alive in 2013, Jean Dujardin was the star <laughs> the of a six-year-old listening to this yeah, pod. Was a man who started in the movie called The Artist. Remember The Artist? The Artist won Best Picture yeah. in 2012. This is a silent, silent, remake. silent, yeah. silent film. And uh, somebody lent me the DVD. Have still not watched it nor returned it. Um, <laughs> I wanted to see watch it. it. I wanted to see it just to you know say I did it. And he, the picture won Best Picture. The picture won Best Picture, and he won Best Actor. He won Best Actor. That was on that Benini run where we were just giving Europeans the Best Actor. It's just an absolutely ridiculous like thing. Like the '90s NBA draft, yeah. late '90s, yeah. a little bit. It's just like Jan Vesely sounds good. <laughs> he could run though. Yeah, Vesely could get end to end. That size, that handle, finish at the rim. I see why they did it. Dujardin is kind of the skittish feely. I feel like. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are really down on him. He, he saw him once. You know. Do you he, think the accent's just tricking us here? Are we doing that thing? I just think that like. He's just in a different movie. Like, I think yeah. he's trying, but, like, he he actually gets my overacting award. Not to step on it. Okay. Uh, and then number one. It's McConaughey. McConaughey. He has one scene. The only person I would throw in here is P.J. Byrne as Rugrat. He's good. He's good. He's, he's got, he's really in much of the movie, I think. Didn't like him. You oh. didn't like Rugrat? No. Or the soundtrack? Uh, <laughs> I, I just, you know, there are certain moments with all of the side guys that, like, Cuthbert just made me laugh, right? Yeah. Like the the What's chubby, the, is it Cuthbert? Yeah, which is the one who's like, he sold meat and weed. <laughs> I think that was him. That was him. Cuthbert. Cuthbert, all right, so yeah. uh, not. Sea otter. Yeah, yeah sea otter. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, I, I left out a syllable there. Those, I, those guys are all going in that guy. I don't want to get too far ahead of that guy. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're driving in and want to listen to your favorite Ringer podcast hands-free, just say, Hey Google, play the latest episode of The Watch podcast. All right, here's the latest episode of The Watch. Breaking down, Watchmen. Hey Google, pause podcast. A little help, hands-free. Just say, Hey Google, to get started. You want to do some half-ass internet research? Sure. Matthew McConaughey's scenes were shot on the second week of filming. The chest beating and humming performed by him was improvised and actually a warm-up right, as Ryan noted, that he performs before acting. When Leo saw it while filming, the brief shot of him looking away uneasily from the camera was actually him looking at Martin Scorsese for approval. 
DiCaprio encouraged them to include it in their scene and later claimed to, quote, set the tone for the rest of the film. Pretty good sliding doors there if we don't have that scene there. Yeah. Now, here's some important half-assed internet research that Ryan Russell actually happens to be a little bit of an expert on. The film was alleged by the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission to have been financed by money stolen from the Malaysian 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund by producer Riza Aziz, who pled not guilty to charges laid in July 2019. In 2016, it had been named in a series of civil complaints filed by the Department of Justice for, quote, having provided a trust account through which hundreds of millions of dollars belonging to the One Malaysia Development Berhad Fund were illicitly siphoned, which had included the funds to finance the film. To settle the lawsuit, Red Granite Pictures agreed to pay U.S. $60 million to the government with no admission of wrongdoing or liability on the part of Red Granite. So really, this story is um, part of Billion Dollar Whale, which is this bigger story. Billion Dollar Whale, a book that came out last year, Bradley Hope, Tom Wright. I had Tom Wright on my podcast because I love this story so much. And it's basically this kid, Jolo, who went to Penn, um, was a kid who came from Malaysia. And actually, the family was pretty well off, multi-million dollar value. But he was around generational wealth. And I think he was probably kind of like an insecure, chubby kid who was around people that were richer and girls wouldn't talk to him. So he just was really good at like contacting people and networking in a very unassuming way. And he would keep track of all these people he met. And he would, you know, he would throw these parties while he was in college, which was kind of set a precedent. He wouldn't always pay the bill. And he goes back to Malaysia and he was like, I just want to kind of start a fund. And it's kind of funny too. He's like, I remember two of my buddies being like, Hey, I'm going to start a hedge fund. I'm like, Mm -hmm. how do you just start a hedge fund? Like, why would anybody (laughs) give you money? And yet these guys actually did it. That friends of mine, the difference is they didn't steal all their money from the Malaysian government. And so this Aziz kid was the stepson of the prime minister uh, was, was the, was the son of the wife, you know? So like, you know, the second wife or whatever. And he, was like, okay, cool. Like, I'd like to get this fun going. And then, I mean, it sounds absurd, but this Jolo kid was just good with emails and he got some people from the Middle East involved and they started just kind of moving money around. They'd buy up stuff and then he got left out of a deal. So he was like, screw that. And then he would just start getting like these different banks. And then all of a sudden Goldman Sachs started valuing some of their deals. And he just wanted to be this kid that was like in on the deal. Like Paris Hilton would fly to these ski trips with him. When he saw Lindsay Lohan out at a bar in New York City, he bought her 23 bottles of champagne for her birthday. And then he befriended all of these people. He bought part of EMI and then they wanted to do movies. And they buddied up with DiCaprio and DiCaprio and Scorsese, I'm assuming from what I've read and kind of just putting it together, it's like, hey, this guy's a billionaire. Nobody really knows his deal, but Mm -hmm. he's this Malaysian billionaire who apparently has some sort of fund, which again, was just ripping off the Malaysian government as they just moved this money around. And he was taking it all. He's buying up real estate. He's buying, he bought, I think Marlon Brando's Oscar and sent it to DiCaprio as a gift. DiCaprio did give it back. They had the single largest art purchase in the history of art for like 43 million at one point. And so they were like music, rappers, famous people, starlets hanging out in LA, New York, London, the whole deal ridiculous parties, Vegas parties that had Vegas people being like, this is absurd. (laughs) And DiCaprio and Scorsese saw guys that would give them total control and endless money. And that's how this movie got funded. And he, Scorsese had gone through like a half a year of development on this movie. And basically, I think he'd said like, I wasted half a year of my life trying to get this thing going. So like to have the creative control, although in a sort of twist of poetic fate, the way this movie is funded is essentially a testament to the reality of the movie itself. That and also exactly right. the enticement of having that money at your fingertips can make you throw away a lot of your principles. 
fascinating kind of active metaphor for the story they're trying to tell. And to think that you wouldn't know it at the time. They knew because it. Because it was this <laughs> – no, but I mean when the movie's coming the out, of it. 2013 yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. like I don't think it's absurd to – you know, when however you've been along – the ride for, for certain things in entertainment where you're like, what's this guy's story? Or like, who's this guy? We're like, Oh, I got a guy, I got a guy. And think how many of those things, like another, none of it ever gets exposed. Right. And with this, it was, you know, exposed and deniability and, and, you know, look all the stuff, this thing's still out there and they're trying to figure out how to like recoup some of this money. And they think Jolo's like hooked up with China and paid them for protection and this this whole thing. And Jesus. DiCaprio and, and the other people that were involved apparently gave back everything that was gifted to them. But at one point, like DiCaprio is a real life party buddy with this Jolo dude from yeah. Malaysia. And I don't know if it was ever like, did you actually like him? Did anybody like this guy? Right. Or was it always part of it where it's like, you know, I he's somebody that can help me achieve what I want to achieve. But, that, you know, famous people, like really crazy DiCaprio type famous people can be, Interesting in that, like, oh, wait a minute, I kind of trust you and you kind of leave me alone and you have more money than I even have. So, like, you don't really even need anything from me. And yeah, it's cool to be with DiCaprio, but whatever. But, like, sometimes odd friendships can even happen. So, I don't, I don't know what the extent of, of the friendship was, but this movie is a lot different without this kid from Malaysia stealing sure. money. One of the reasons that they needed so much money to make this movie is because there's between 400 and 450 VFX shots, which is you know, for Martin Scorsese, Hugo notwithstanding, very uncommon. I would also argue that without this movie, I don't think we'd get The Irishman because it's The like, Irishman like he is starts so, messing around with stuff. Like he this. starts getting yeah. interested in digital technology. This movie's shot digitally instead of on film, and he was one of the last bastions of fighting for shooting on film. The film set a Guinness World Record for most instances of swearing in a motion picture. The F-word expletive is heard 506 times, averaging 2.81 times per minute. The previous record holder. Any guesses? Um, something with Richard Pryor? No. Uh, <laughs> not a bad guess. Not, not in a movie. Midnight um, Run? No. Another no. Scorsese movie. Not Goodfellas, is it? Not Goodfellas. Casino? Casino. Mm. Casino included 422 repetitions of the F word, including in the voiceover narration, and the 1997 British film Nil by Mouth in which the F word was spoken 428 times. The film received a C rating from audiences surveyed by CinemaScore, a rating lower than anything else in theaters the opening week of the film. This is why America is not to be trusted. The actors snorted crushed B vitamins for scenes that involved cocaine. Jonah Hill claimed that he eventually became sick with bronchitis after so much inhaling and had to be hospitalized. This movie also does commit the weird Scorsese consistent error of somebody blows a line of coke and then throws their head back like they've, they've got a hook around their neck which I've never seen a person do in real life. That's just not the experience that people have when they're using that drug. Um, Christina McDowell, daughter of Tom Prusalis, who worked closely with the real-life Belfort at Stratton Oakmont, wrote an open letter addressing Scorsese, DiCaprio, and Belfort himself, criticizing the film for insufficiently portraying the victims of the financial crimes created by Stratton Oakmont. Some people connected to the film and the book and everything, not super happy with this movie. You know, that's always, uh, like... What do you do? Are you supposed to do you like this gets back to like some of the stuff that we we're talking about already. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. But, you know, the, one of the things that I liked about Boiler Room was they did have that part where mm -hmm. you're like, hey, you know, how, well, how did this guy get your number? Oh, you know, he's he's a good guy. He's a family guy, you know. Yeah. And they're talking about Giovanni. Uh, I forget his last Rubizi. name. Rubizi. Yeah. I, I, I always struggle with him. And I don't know. I don't like I like the movie. I like the movie. Like I don't. I, it, it, it's to me like it's, it's the epitome of like what today is where mm -hmm. it's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to tweet something. 
okay, well, here are the seven things you left out. Be like, no, 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 this was just my fucking tweet. Like, that's all it was. I had 280 characters. Here's an observation. And because I didn't write the other things doesn't mean that I don't also understand all the things you're coming back at me with here. So what's the obligation of the movie as much as that part sucks, it sucks all these people lost. I mean, at the root of this, this is what this guy did. He, yeah, but, he, he knowingly took this. But I don't know what, what are the rules on that supposed to well, be? Well, it's also like if we had, if they had made a movie about the victims of financial crimes, nobody would have gone to see it. They did make a movie. It was called 99 Homes yeah, uh, and, starring Andrew Garfield, and no one watched that movie. No, I, I think that the fact that movies like Wolf of Wall Street are popular is what's wrong. Right, it's all connected. <laughs> it's it's like, all part of a cycle. And I think that that's like where he's at the end of this movie when the shot goes out into the audience, and it's like you just watch this. You thought this was fun. Think about it. Like that's what this movie's about. It's also about um, sex. Margot Robbie claimed that her sex scene with Leonardo DiCaprio on a bed full of cash was extremely uncomfortable, as the fake paper bills had sharp edges, resulting in multiple paper cuts to her back. Any takes on the sex scenes in this movie, Chris? Just you want to vamp for twenty minutes about them? No, I, I'm good. Okay. The, the last one's pretty disturbing. Okay. Um, the last one is awesome. <laughs> no, it's awesome because yeah. it's such a fuck you. Yeah. It is like... It's supposed to be disturbing, yeah. The ultimate turn, and she's... I mean, that that's a really incredible scene to, to do it that way. And then it's like, okay, now it's over. Mm-hmm. And now it's like done. And it mm-hmm. wasn't... You know, there's all these different ways you could try to portray some of these stories and emphasize certain things to, to the audience. But I, I thought that one was so, um, you can't call it nasty or revenge because she deserves. It's like, exactly what he, he does to everybody else right. throughout the whole movie. Like it should have been awful. It should have been an awful, heartbreaking experience for him because it's like throughout all of this. And this is what happens to guys. I think this happens to guys more often than girls. But like when a guy is at rock bottom, like the girl that has his back that you've taken advantage of, you, you know, you've. You've just not appreciated her enough. But then when you hit that rock bottom moment, it's like, oh, you know who's been fucking awesome to me? This girl who's had my back, even though she shouldn't. And so maybe now that everything, all the walls are crumbling around me, maybe now I truly see like how special this person is. And he didn't deserve to get her back. Right. So I thought that was pretty heavy yeah. the way they executed that. That whole sequence leading up to the the freak out and the kidnapping is is amazingly well done, and it's it's a it's the Scorsese we're actually more familiar with. It's back to raging yeah, bull. It's, it's back to taxi driver. It's back to dread and fear. That's him and slapping violence. like the eggs out of her yes. hands and raging bull. Yeah. Um, on a routine visit, Steven Spielberg spent a day on the set watching the shoot of the Steve Madden speech. Martin Scorsese claims that Spielberg essentially co-directed the scene, giving advice to actors and suggesting camera angles. I thought that was fascinating. I don't know if that's true. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I've never heard of someone doing that. And that shows you how confident Scorsese is that he would let Spielberg onto his set and do that. When Simmons had Damon on last week in studio, I was actually in the background yeah, being, just like, being like, rap, yeah. no, different, quicker questions. Yeah. Don't uh, move on so fast. I, that, that's like, I don't know if that's the ultimate ego to be like, I'm okay with Spielberg Good giving call. me a few heads up. You know, because everyone maybe at the tier below that goes, hey, Steve. Like, Scram. Right. Like, do you need to, can somebody send this guy a link to my IMTV <laughs> real quick? But imagine being that cool with another legend and just getting some other eyes on it, right? I mean, I guess surgeons do it. I guess also those two guys are like two true cinematic geniuses who might actually be like, there's a, there is a right way to tell this scene. And there's like maybe something I'm not thinking of that you're thinking of. It just makes sense that it, it's actually not that out of the, out of the question. 
Jordan Belfort coached Leonardo DiCaprio on his behavior, especially instructing him in the various ways he had reacted to the quaaludes he abused, as well as his dope-induced confrontation with Danny Porish, who was the character that Jonah Hill plays. Um, that seems like a weird conversation. Jordan Belfort talking to Leo about how to be on ludes. But doesn't it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you've never, I don't know if somebody would who, like, does them, you know, I don't know, you know. I mean, would, we would, don't, would an, we're, 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 we're out of them, so we don't know. Right. Well, there's that. Yeah, right. I mean, could DiCaprio be like, oh, is it kind of like, like, I don't know what the deal is. So Yeah, it that, sounds like it's like, there's sort of like, it's like when you try to stay up on Ambien, but like much harder. During the kissing scene between Leo and Joanna Lumley, DiCaprio was so nervous that the scene required a reported 27 takes to get right. Hmm. Just trying to get a little closer to that ab fab. Martin Scorsese has confirmed that some of the editing is odd on purpose, especially the scenes where one or more characters are high. Every time Jordan is seen taking drugs, the scenes that follow have continuity issues and often flow oddly. Thought that was interesting. I have to watch it again now. Leonardo DiCaprio's dance scene was done on the spot, but he learned it by himself over decades. I don't really know what that means. That means he just it's learned like how to do the robot in 1989. Of great wedding dances. I yeah. Guess so. Yeah, that just means that he was good at that when he was in junior yeah. high. And every time he. It's a real bar mitzvah like, dance. Right. Like yeah. the people that are closest to yeah. him in his life yeah. after a few sarsaparillas, he's like, he <laughs> starts doing the robot. A couple of Oduls. But that's another smashed up music sequence there mm-hmm. where yeah. it's three songs on top of each other in like a minute and a half. It's true. Before we move on, let's take another quick break. If you're giving everyone on your list Bombas socks this holiday, you deserve a spot in the Holiday Gifting Hall of Fame. I personally have been loving my Bombas socks. They're incredibly soft, like made with the softest cotton in the world soft. They're built with extra cushioning, so whether you're walking the dog or chilling at home, you'll be comfortable. Bombas socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed it, like your arches. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that feels like a nice hug for your foot. And they're smooth across the top. No more annoying toe seam. Bombas makes all types of socks. Dress socks for work, performance socks for working out, and limited edition holiday socks. They even have a line of merino wool socks that are soft, warm, and naturally moisture-wicking. Bombas is the gift everyone will love, even that person who's impossible to shop for. And for every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So go to bombas.com slash rewatchables and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale, November 18th through December 5th. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash rewatchables for 20% off. Bombas.com slash rewatchables. Recasting couch. Would you recast anybody in this movie? And if so, who? I have one suggestion. Jennifer Lawrence as Naomi. Out. No. Well, I mean, I knew you would say that. Hard no. Carl Weathers as Jonah Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Smoke crack with me! <laughs> it takes on a different valence. Um, I don't think it's impossible. No, Let, I think, it, I mean, think get back to me tomorrow. Yeah, after you've thought about it more. <laughs> the Joey Pants Award. Bo Deedle. Ethan Suppley. Uh huh. Stephanie Kurtzuba as Kimmy Belzer. Christine Ebersol as Leah Belfort. Does Max really Belfort screen time her right? No. Kenneth Choi as Chester Ming. He's great. PJ Byrne as Rugrat, who Brian doesn't like. Shea Wiggum is the captain. Aya Cash is Janet, who I think is closer to being known as Aya Cash, but not totally there yet. Mm-hmm. So she's in contention. Thomas Middleditch as Stratton Broker with the fishbowl. Yeah. Fran Lebowitz as the judge. That was good. The real Jordan Belfort at the end of the movie, introducing Jordan Belfort. And Stephen Kunkin, who is Ari from Billions. Oh, yeah. As the guy who works underneath Mark Hanna. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I thought Belfort had like a weird time with that scene at the end. 
yeah, his energy is unique. Yeah, did you notice like it felt like that was the best take? You think he was on Ludes? No, no. <laughs> I just, I, it felt like it feels a street, very surreal. like someone off the street being in a movie trying yeah. to act. Yeah. Where it's like an MC at a bad comedy club. Ooh. Yeah. And you're like, oh, why are we seeing this guy? And that's like, oh, it's him. But then Leo is fucking weird with the pen, you know, walking around like. I get the impression that he's a guy who's taken all the drugs in the world. And that probably changes your brain chemistry somehow. Maybe it's affecting him in, in modern times. Or maybe he was just nervous being in a movie. Could be. Yeah. You know? There with Marty and Leo and Spielberg possibly. Am I, am I off on that one? Because when I, I remember like no, the first time I saw it, I was like, it just seems a little choppy. It's yeah. also the end of the movie and you're like, it kind of takes you out of it for a second. Right. And they're doing so many different things at the end of the movie that you're also like, wait a minute, where am I right now? And yeah. like, am mm-hmm. I, okay, all right, now I figured it out once it's sort of over. But I just, that was always something that jumped out at me in, in watching it again. Um, I, again, how smooth do I expect somebody who's never acted before to be in this level of a movie to pull that off? But, but he acted every day of his life for his troops, you know, <laughs> his, his warriors, his telephone terrorists. Well said. I'm going to go middle ditch. Middle ditch. Wow. Okay. This is, was it, I think this was at the very beginning of Silicon yeah. Valley, right? Um, what about for you? Uh, I was going to go Belfour. I think Ethan Suppley is doing good work here. Yeah. Speaking of Kevin, are you a big Kevin Smith guy? It's not true. I'm serious. Do you like Kevin Smith, like early Kevin Smith stuff? (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I, you know, I liked Clerks. I liked Mallrats. Dog, keep going. Dogma bummed me out. No. Dogma bummed you out. I thought you would be like a little bit of a dogma guy. No, Ryan. Not correct. All right. You're off the dogma rewatchables. <laughs> the Linda Partridge, don't call me lady, award for overacting. Did I not understand the Joey Pants award? I think that's what just happened there. I don't know that the Joey Pants, Joey Pants is more of like a list. It's like, just like, here are all the people that wound up being in lots of other stuff kind of thing. Got it. Got it. Because he's not in anything else. So no. I did get it wrong. But, but like, yeah. I think your point was well taken, which is like, yeah. then there's this guy in the back and it's Belfort. Yeah. He's been training salespeople for the last 10 years though, getting rich off it. I should show up to one of these seminars. You can round out your life skills. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what are you into right now? <laughs> to, to learn or to teach? Who knows? I mean, some of these, when I started researching life coaching, just to, not because I wanted I to be one. I think you'd be a good life coach. Oh, I think I'd be a good one too. But uh, and that's the confidence you have to have as a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The overacting award. Um, I don't, you know. Reiner. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, it's not even. Reiner. It's not even a question. It's Reiner. Reiner is fucking nuts in this movie. He just screams the entire time. Okay. I, I, I this, buy it. This is the, I think people are getting the the Linda Partridge Overacting Award, formerly known as the Saul Rubinek, they, uh, you Stabbed Me in the Heart Award, formerly Mark Ruffalo, They Knew Award. It's not a critique per se. Okay, I'm not saying Rob Reiner is canceled. I'm not saying Rob Reiner didn't contribute a lot to American yeah. culture. I'm just saying in this movie, he just yells for five minutes. I like how you went full Rob Manfred there. You were like, <laughs> in the rule book, stealing signs That's is right. legal, but not in this fashion. Jim Crane's here with a couple good. of cops. We're just going to walk right off right now. So that's, yeah. That's, no, no case for McConaughey here. No. 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 Okay. How dare okay. you? Right. Kimmy a little bit. Oh. Kimmy. Take, yeah. take it down a thousand, Kimmy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, can you have any nits to pick with this movie? I, I don't have anything written down. And in fact, I said to our producer, Craig, when I shared him on our document, help me out. I, but I know Ryan does. Well, I already did the music thing. Yeah. I'm not going to keep beating it. Okay. Apex Mountain. Is it Leo's Apex Mountain? I think Django 
is, oh. uh, you know, as we were sitting here talking about like playing a darker character, like it's definitely worth revisiting that conversation. Be like, look, Django's a hell of a lot darker than uh, his role in Django. Is yeah. is darker than being a shithead on Wall Street. But, um, you know, the, it's funny how like the Revenant was almost people were sort of after the fact pissed about him not having an Oscar, mm-hmm. and it was like this is going to happen. And the Revenant is great. Not just because of him, but the way it's shot, the way the natural light stuff, sure. like the way they were like, we these rules that we're going to follow. That must have been miserable shooting that movie. But it's it's not clear enough. It's not like for me, he's so good in those other roles that I, I don't just sit there and be like, if somebody wanted to argue with me, hey, no, wait a minute. What he did in Django is far more impressive than what he did in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I just don't know if there's a sup- enough separation in the roles for me to say Apex Mountain. Uh, I think arguably you have to say that Titanic is his apex mountain, right? Still never seen it. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's good. I'm saying that he's just the most popular person in the world. What about Aviator? Like, he's incredible in that. Yeah. Man. It's not just about performance, though. It's about what, what he about can Body do of Lies? in the business. No. I love Body of Lies. <laughs> let's just, awesome let's just do Post the Beach. These are his roles, okay? Catch Me If You Can. Phenomenal. Gangs of New York, I'll fight for it every day. Right. I just wish there was a version... Um, that he's not in? No. Without Cameron Diaz. Without the Cameron Diaz. Yeah. Only to be trumped by a non-Sharon Stone casino edit. Right. But... Uh, what? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that movie towards the end, I'm just like, okay, I got it. It's a tumultuous relationship. Like, <laughs> You got to hold on to that take because it's way too hot for me. Um, Aviator, The Departed, Blood Diamond, Body of Lies, Revolutionary Road, Shutter Island, Inception, J. Edgar, which I think is the only true, true dud here. Django, Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street. All leading up to The Revenant where he wins the Oscar. I would probably take his performance in all of those movies over The Revenant, which is a classic Oscar thing. This is what happens. Except for J. Edgar. Except for J. Where he's just in an old man suit. Inception is just, I like it so much, but it's not the intensity. Like, he's playing kind of the Leo that we know in a normal role. Um, That movie's great. I think for other reasons than, than DiCaprio. I agree. Okay. So, so this yeah. is not Apex Mountain not for Leo. It's, it's not, not for Scorsese. Burnthal? <laughs> I mean, on, on, for me, yes. It for might be for Jonah. Personal Apex Mountain. I noticed something on a little nitpick. Burnthal's mugshot, I think they have him over six feet. You don't think you know, so? buy that? I don't know. Have you he's met list, him? He's listed at 5'11". I stood next to him at something once. Listed? Yeah. Listed where? <laughs> The NBA.com's <laughs> rosters. But the but the combine heights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking in shoes, flats, lifts. Uh, best quote. This could go on for a while. I don't want to make it go on for too long. I have about 1,200 words here um, for best quote. How much performance do you Honestly, do? I don't want to do that. I, I will say it's the entire McConaughey jerking off speech. That's the entire one is the quote, the best quote. I myself, I jerk off at least twice a day. Wow. Once in the morning, right after I work out, and then once right after lunch. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay? I want to. That's not why I do it. Mm-hmm. I do it because I fucking need to. Think about it. You're dealing with numbers all day long, decimal points, high frequencies, bang, 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 fucking digits, all very acidic, above-the-shoulders mustard shit. All right? <laughs> kind of wakes some people out, right? You got to feed the geese. To keep the blood flowing. I keep the rhythm below the belt. <laughs> this is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me, 
If you don't, you will fall out of balance, split your differential, and tip the fuck over. What the fuck is he talking about? I know why you like this, because this is a fake Robert Downey Jr. performance. This yeah, is maybe. this is what Downey does. This free associative, hyper-intelligent, but completely illogical word vomit. That's totally what Downey does in his best performances, and that's kind of what that is. But it's great. Um, then I have a bunch that I feel weird repeating. We don't have to say every scumbag thing. I mean, there's a couple. Let me tell you something. There's no nobility in poverty, which is a poll from Wall Street. There is no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every fucking time. Because at least as a rich man... When Those I are the kinds of lines of dialogue that are weaponized in the movie, maybe to ill-gotten gains. Um, opening lines in the movie, my name is Jordan Belfort. I'm a former member of the middle class, raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. Sell me this pen. Mm-hmm. Famous one. So you listen to me and you listen well. Are you behind on your credit card bills? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Is your landlord ready to evict you? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Does your girlfriend think you're a fucking worthless loser? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. Uh, man, they're so, so, I might, so One of my many. favorite lines is when Leo takes the hit of crack and he's like, oh! <laughs> Lions and tigers and bears! Some good stuff here. Um, fun coupons? Hey, fellas! Look what I found in my pocket! Look! A year's salary right here. What I call them? Fun coupons. See that? A fun coupon. When he's throwing the money at Kyle Chandler? We didn't really rep for Kyle Chandler at all in this. Not really. I don't know. That that scene had some moments in it where, but I don't know if it was the moment where you're like, why are you doing this? You're about to make it worse. Mm -hmm. Like you're this invested in the person and the story at that point where you have that like, that, that just inherent reaction of like, oh, you're doing the thing that's going to make it worse. Why are you go ahead and doing this? And, the fun coupons thing just felt a little, little over the top, but I was going to go with one because I mean, obviously the Mark Hanna stuff is what everybody wants, but when he does the speech, when he's at, um, the Long Island place where he's about to, you know, he's doing the airtime thing. John, one thing I can promise you, even in this market is that I never ask my clients to judge me on my winners. I ask them to judge me on my losers because I have so few. And in the case of Aerotime, based on every technical factor out there, John, we are looking at a grand slam home run. It's perfect, right? Because he's on it, he nails it, and he's just like, all of a sudden, they're like, well, this guy just came in off the street in a better suit than us, and he is doing this in a way, like, the first guy that looks up is like, wait, this guy's got yeah. like a really good... Wait, anybody who's ever had a cold call, like, it just sucks. Don't I judge had to... me on my winners, judge yeah, me on my right, losers, because I are... have so few. Yeah. That line is so great. Yeah. And I ask that you judge me, not on my winners. I... And the entire time he's doing all these like hand gestures, like when he's like, when he's like, you finally met a broker with your best needs at heart. You know what I mean? Like with your, you know, like with your interests. Because they had to do like, there's actually a part of this. It's like, wait a minute. Like, give me the breakdown of how this guy actually did this. Like, Mm -hmm. how did you actually take this much money from this many people in such a short amount of time? Like, and it's, uh, it's something as a writer that you'll you'll do these these characters and it's like well wait a minute if this person's great at something can at some point you show me them being great mm-hmm. at the thing that you're telling me that they're great at like don't assume 
that I know that this person is great. Like, give me an example of how they were able to do this. And it's kind of an underrated, incredibly important scene to go, oh, well, this character just, he had that thing. Like the kid who's got the lemonade stand, the kid that's marking up candy at, at, at school. Like those, those kids that just see the world a little differently and monetize everything. Um, and DiCaprio's incredible in it. And he's great because of the reaction he's getting around him in the room too. Like everybody in the backdrop of that shot is as important as DiCaprio is. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'm never eating a Benihana again, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't care whose birthday it is. I can't believe that fucking guy. I want to kill him. I swear to God, I want to choke him to death. Irresponsible little prick. I'll tell you one thing. I'm never eating a Benihana again. I don't care whose birthday it is. Where's Naomi? How's she doing? Um, I already mentioned this, but oh my God, you had to deal with the golf course people too. What a Greek tragedy, honey. Oh my God, you had probably to pay them in cash with your hands. Oh, you wanted, my I God. know, you fucking read it. No, you didn't research the whole thing and deal with the fucking golf course people. Oh my God, you had to deal with the golf course people too. What a Greek tragedy, honey. Oh, my God. You probably had to pay them in cash with your hands. What a fucking burden. And actually do some work besides swiping my fucking credit card all day. Huh? Because I can't keep track of your professions, honey. Because last month you were a wine connoisseur. Now you're an aspiring landscape architect. Let me get that right. No, fuck you. No, fucking dare. Throw that fucking water at me. Don't you fucking To pay them in cash with your hands. Great stuff. You show me a pay stub for $72,000. I quit my job right now and I work for you. Aunt Emma, risk is what keeps us young, isn't it, darling? Also kind of a tidy tagline for the movie. You be ferocious, you be relentless, you be telephone fucking terrorist. Now let's knock this motherfucker out of the park. A lot of, a lot of quotables in this movie. Any more, Chris? Massive heart attack, age 35, same age Mozart died. Not that they had a lot in common. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Sea Otter, who sold meat and weed, really loved that introduction of character. You're free now, run free. <laughs> That whole scene. That's good. And I'm not going to let someone else fuck my cousin. Uh, I'll just end. <laughs> we already brought it up once before, but I, when when Donnie's sitting there with him and he sees the ankle bracelet and he's asking about O'Doul's. Yeah. And then so he's just like, go, go smoke some, snort some bacon powder. <laughs> and he's just like, you're, you're wondering if DiCaprio's going to have this moment where he's like, hey, look, you know, this is what I need to do right now. And he's like, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks, man. <laughs> Could this work as a 10-episode Netflix show in 2019? No. All right, go ahead. Well, not at this clip. Not at the—I don't think you could sustain the kind of uh, manic energy that it has over the course of 10 episodes. You disagree? No, my first instinct when I when I read the to-do list for this pod, I went, well, yeah, of course. Like, why not? I mean, you already have sure. the built-in IP. You have— other things that have been done in Netflix series, like what are we trying to do here? But it would be a little, it's it's far more challenging the more I thought about it, pulling off, okay, well, where are your 30 episodes? Like why, what's the story arc at the end of one when I already kind of know some of this stuff? Like mm-hmm. what's what's the part of this that branches off? Like, okay, so what, you're just fucking over clients for season one and then what? Okay, so somebody get arrested and then season two, I'm coming back, what? So it actually would be harder to grow this over multiple seasons. I think then- yeah. Unless you just decided to completely deviate 
from what it is. Like sometimes when you're adapting a book. Well, you could book, tell it from Naomi's perspective. You could tell it from their FBI agent's perspective. Like you could have like more ABC plots kind of going on. But, but I guess like part of the wonder of the movie is the like you're in Jordan's mind for most of this movie. Yeah, like imagine going, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take the two less interesting storylines and develop the show around that. Like the pitch would be two seconds. They'd be yeah. like, all right, see you later. Um, so it, it would be, my first instinct was like, oh, wait, people love this stuff. They love the debauchery. They love all this stuff. But no, no, it, it, you would need to figure out a way to build it around this, but string it out for three years. And that's always the hardest. Like, there's plenty of great ideas. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, what's episode 30? Guys, we have billions on succession. So there is some lineage here for The Wolf of Wall Street as a TV show. But we haven't already seen the end of billions and succession. Right. So I know I'm repeating myself, but. If you're telling me, hey, creatively, this is the deviation from it, but we stay in this world, mm-hmm. all right, okay, well, what is it? What is it? But it would be, you, you'd need to have more depth to this. Yeah, it's and, not that I don't think we can have, like, financial misdeed shows. It's just that, like, telling them, like, in a fever dream is hard to sustain over this time, uh, like, more than, like, a single sitting. Well, it's a good transition to probably unanswerable questions. I feel like we've explored some of the more tricky thematic aspects of the movie. The victims properly portrayed and then what they lost in the movie. Should we be judging based on who likes the movie versus who understands what the movie is actually about? Are there any actual story questions that we're curious about? Like we haven't gotten into Danny Porish at all, for example, who is the, mm-hmm. the Donny Azoff character who rejected the movie and said that it was a dishonest account of the things that had happened and wanted his name removed from the film, which is why the name has changed to Donnie. Is there anything about the real life machinations that you guys wonder about? I just, I mean, I think that when you get into the, the, the car turns from red to white, it's more stuff like that. It's more stuff like the plane crashing. Did you see that where you start asking what in the movie is real versus not? And the same thing with like, he gets home and he, you know, both the, there's, there's the flight where he wakes up and he's like, what, why am I strapped to this chair? Or when he wakes up and he's just like, I got home. Why are these cops in my house? I, I drove home. I should be fine. And you just start to see like all the stuff that from his perspective is this, deba- this debaucherous good time that's in fact like creating so much havoc and, and uh, hell around him. So you have to wonder like you, you go back and you watch the movie being like, I wonder if this is quote unquote happened, even though within... I'm like I'm less concerned about like whether or not it's accurate. It's more about whether or not like what you're seeing on screen is actually what's happening. Uh, there's there's so many times where you can be like, oh wait a minute, would would that make sense mm-hmm. or would she stick around? I mean, even the real life Margot Robbie said, hey, you know, like I wasn't equipped to deal with an addict at this age, and I was simply trying to protect my family, and that's not. That's not a hard thing to believe. Mm-hmm. It isn't. Like, I think sometimes we'll watch these things from afar and you're like, well, why would the person stay or what, what happens? I mean, again, this is based on a true story. And she she talked a lot about it in, in some of the research I did on her. And uh, think about all the people that, you know, hopefully you don't know too many people, but there's there's always someone you know or a relative or something like that where you're like, that dynamic is really messed up. Yeah. And yet they're still always trying to figure it out, even when everybody around them is rooting against it. So there aren't, people are easily scammed. Financially, we know that. Uh, we know that guys, once you start to do like, this is always a little weird to talk about, but like I always think about the guy that later on in life decides to start going down this road. 
And it's like, what's that gateway activity sure. where all of a sudden you're willing to like risk your family, risk everything. But some of these guys that become, he was rich young. So I think Belfort, no matter what, was going to, you know, test the limits here. But older guys that you're like, man, look at, look at how great everything would be sure. on the surface. Like, how are you allowing yourself to be in these situations? Well, it starts a little bit of this, starts a little texting, right? you know, then it's like a, you know, next thing you know, I'm at a bar last call and she's here and, you know, maybe I'm not supposed, you know, and then it's, okay, well, it's just, we're fighting now and it's just, you know what I mean? You're saying like, it's, it's really easy to, to question some of the stuff, but like, how could it be this out of control? But I think this is kind of how it goes for people who just decide they're going to push the limits. I feel like you're on the brink of a confession, Ryan. Did you kill a guy? You can tell us right now. <laughs> uh, no, luckily, I, you know, not being married, I don't feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm going down some road here that I, I'm, I, I, I just always like it's look just at us here. You can yeah, tell no, us no, what, no. You, what you feel. I just think that there are guys that five years after the first thing that they didn't think was a big deal, five years later, they're like, how the fuck did I end up here? Yes. Yeah. How do I have two families so, and two homes in right. two states? So yeah. if you're watching this going, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, no, I, I think this was just a very lucrative version of an American tale we've heard and over and over is, again. And the truth is that people get away with as much as they can afford to get away with. Mm-hmm. And he could afford everything. He could afford a divorce. He could afford covering up. He could afford refurbishing the Mirage 27th floor. He could afford everything. So there is no consequences if you can afford right. it. Like, and I don't think any woman starts off being like, I'm going to be okay with prostitutes, mm-hmm. but as long as it's not in my front of, in front of my face. And then next thing you know, you're getting into arguments with your husband about, you know, prostitutes. And plus, and if you like, and your husband come home and find the bachelor having an orgy, the, the butler having an orgy like those guys do. I was like, playing in a different <laughs> playground. Yeah. yeah, you're playing in a different playground. <laughs> let's let's wrap this up. Who won the movie? Leo. McConaughey. Wow. I'm going to say Scorsese. One, because I always say the director, because I feel like they're the author of the whole project. Two, because it was a reminder that he was like, I'm not fucking just, done you yet. You just explained auteurist theory like you were John Wayne. The director is the, uh, the author of the whole project. <laughs> well, <laughs> bully for me then, I guess. Um, Scorsese's movie before this is Hugo, which is probably my least favorite movie he ever made. And it felt like him trying to do something different in a later stage of his life and this feels more like you know what i just got to be who i am i gotta be i gotta do that i gotta fire the shotgun sometimes and this is this is every blast at the biggest caliber like it is every move he's got in his book and purposefully overdoing it to make us see all the things that ryan's talking about that like people will push the limits as far as they can and not even realize they're doing it until they're right in the middle of the worst possible situation and it's just, uh, it's amazing to watch. That said, McConaughey, incredible in the movie. Leo, incredible in the movie. Any closing thoughts on The Wolf of Wall Street? I just can't believe years later we found out that this became this movie that was such a rare way to be able to tell. Like, it just seems incredible yeah. that in 2000, whatever, that we still would have people telling Scorsese what he can and can't do in a movie. Yeah. And what version of this movie would we have today if it wasn't for a Malaysian kid stealing billions of dollars? Shout out to him. <laughs> did J Lo? Did Joe Lo win the movie? Shout out to Red Granite. <laughs> I think we can firmly say that they did not. Uh, for, for Chris Ryan and Ryan Rosillo, I'm Sean Fancy. Thank you so much for listening to the Rewatchables.
LaCroix sparkling water delivers refreshment, flavor, and sparkle with an innocent twist of zero calories, zero sweeteners, and zero sodium. LaCroix 25 flavors are derived from natural sources with natural fruit essences. The distinctive packaging, robust aroma, and natural essence make LaCroix the innocent alternative for health-conscious consumers. LaCroix sparkling water is available nationwide. For a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixwater.com. For more information, join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. We'll be back next week with a special episode of The Rewatchables. We'll be joined by a special guest, and we'll be talking about the movie Happy Gilmore.